You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 472. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 14th of May, 2021. episode, a private plane accidentally takes off with no one on board. Controllers clear a 737 for takeoff with a service vehicle on the runway. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale leaving them behind. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 472 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City. And I was thinking to myself, not only is he in New York City, but he's also here with us in the live audience. Hey there, Roger. Thanks for doing these awesome intros for us. And joining me today from her lakeside studio in South She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. We can't add any more things. I think it's reached the maximum. I could come up with a few more hobbies to, to do. And yeah, then master. I'd have to take a, a breath somewhere in between. So don't do that. <laughs> no, no. There's no, you can't breathe. <laughs> oh, well, that's... It. You sound like my uh, choir director. She says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't breathe. You, you practice these things, right? Like yeah. it's all breath control. And, uh, I have can't do it anymore. Anyway. Good to see you, Jeff. Great to see you. Also joining us from his studio in... In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. He's a world traveler. No. Well, he used to be. <laughs> he is a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330-340 captain for Virgin Atlantic. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and uh, hi, Steph. Uh, no funny one-liners today. I'm just looking forward to getting on with the show. Let's do it. Stand by for news. All right, let's start with this. An accident. Everybody's been talking about it. It just happened, I believe it was yesterday that yesterday. this happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is from the Aviation Herald, Simon's wonderful news site. A Key Lime Air, Key Lime Air, Swearingen, SA-22-6 Tango Charlie Metro 2, 
or uh, what do they call that? The uh, San Antonio Metro sewer line? pipe oh, or something like yes. that? Yeah. <laughs> Metro <laughs> liner. Yes, I'm sorry. That's the more proper San Antonio sewer pipe is the, <laughs> or something. Sewer, oh, I sewer pipe, I think. Yeah. yeah. Registration yeah. November 280, Kilo Lima, performing flight 970 from Salida, Colorado, or Salida, 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 tomato, Salida, tomato. Kansas, but. Okay. To Denver uh, Centennial Airport in Colorado with one crew was on a visual approach to Centennial's runway 17 left, cleared for the approach and was descending through 6,400 feet, about three nautical miles north of the threshold of runway 17 left. A private Cirrus SR-22 registration November 416 Delta Juliet with two people on board was also on approach to Denver Centennial, descending through 6,400 feet about three nautical miles north of the threshold of pretty much the same place. Uh, one seven right, though, the uh, Cirrus was intending to proceed to. The two aircraft collided. The Cirrus apparently struck across the fuselage of the Metro liner just above the wings, taking out the whole cabin section at that point. The Metro c- crew declared emergency on tower frequency reporting. Well, there was only one crew member there. He uh, declared a, uh, an emergency stating that he had a right engine failure and didn't know that half his airplane was missing, not quite half, but a big chunk of it. And after landing, the crew or he advised it had definitely been in a mid-air collision. I'll tell you what, probably the best thing for us to do would be to play a little bit of video and uh, Bass Aviation uh, on uh, YouTube. It's a really good YouTube channel. If you don't subscribe to it, you should. Uh, has already come out with um, kind of putting all of this together with some radio, uh, radar, um, simulated a radar imagery. Pardon me? A recreation. A recreation. Thank you, Liz. And uh, using the uh, live ATC audio and such. And so let's uh, go ahead and play it. Bass okay. Aviation. Delta Juliet traffic at your one to two o'clock a mile about to turn base is a Skyhawk 6800. Uh, looking for traffic, six Delta Juliet. There's six Delta Juliet, fly towards the west shore of Cherry Creek. The west shore of Cherry Creek for six Delta Juliet. Tower, good morning, Cam 970 on the visual antenna left. Cam 970 Centennial Tower, if you can just maintain that speed, there'll be traffic in position prior to your arrival. I'll do it, Cam 970. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, we'll just pause here for a moment. So the first uh, radio communication we heard there was from the Cirrus SR-22 uh, entering a right downwind on the west side of the airport. The uh, runway is 17 and 35, so basically north-south orienta- orientation. And um, they're entering the downwind, and the tower controller calls out traffic for the Cirrus and which is ahead of them and turning the base leg in front of them. So he's trying to kind of get all sequenced behind him. And then they call out, uh, well, they haven't actually called out traffic yet, uh, but there's another airplane. The other player in this, uh, in this drama is the uh, Metro liner coming in also from the West, but entering a right base for much further out, by the way, uh, for the other, the parallel runway one seven left. And that's uh the uh, Key Lime 970 call sign. So we'll proceed here. Sir, so 6 Delta Juliet, traffic you're following, just turned right base. They're heading to the right, 6,600 Cessna. 
Uh, traffic in sight, 6 Delta Juliet. Sierra 6 Delta Juliet, follow them, Romeo 17 right, cleared to land. Additional traffic, North Shores, and Metro Line up for the parallel. Have traffic in sight, cleared to land, 17 right, 6 Delta Juliet. Now, pausing again, not sure he actually sees the Metro Liner, because you'd think that if he did, he wouldn't have done what he does next, uh, turning the base and basically flying right into the Metro Liner. Kilo 970 traffic, 1 o'clock, 1 mile, 6,500. Cessna on final for the parallel runway. Roger, Kilo 970, we're looking. Kilo 970, runway 17 left, clear to land, wind foam. Clear to land, 17 left, Kilo 970. So he's coming in on the uh, 17 left. says that they collide midair, and the Cirrus pulls the uh, cap Sirius system. Six Delta Juliet, do not overshoot the final. Cirrus Six Delta Juliet, do you require assistance? Tower, QM 970, declare an emergency. We had, um, looks like the right engine failed, so I'm going to continue my landing here. QM 970, we have crews come in, uh, continue inbound runway 17 left, clear to land. Continue. Sierra 6 Delta Juliet, if you hear this transmission, we have emergency vehicles, zero direction. In tower, uh, there's another one, it's probably a Sierra that dropped the parachute, um, final for 1117. Thank you. Cessna 251, do not overshoot final, there is a, an aircraft that is in distress just south of Cherry Creek Reservoir. By the way, that um, traffic, uh, Cessna 251, has an interesting story that we'll tell in a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just pulled two, 251. If you can give me an accurate location, we would appreciate it. They're about two miles. By those buildings right off uh, 35. Yeah, I see a parachute. Yeah, the parachute is just south of the reservoir. It's in the, uh, in the airport uh, vicinity, just south of the reservoir, correct? Yeah, about a mile from the reservoir. Tower three, sharp Papa. There's a hawk. We're right between the parallels. Attention, aircraft. Use caution for a hawk reported between the parallels. Birds Tower, in the area. Midair. Don't short final. It's four big spots. Yeah, I forget about the, the hawk. <laughs> Seems super important right then. Hey, just let us know. Seventy. Do you need any assistance? I'm gonna taxi off here, and I think I'll just park over and signature. I'm good though. Kilo 970, Roger. I appreciate that. Uh, and if you just stand by the way, right now, the the Key Lime Air pilot has no idea that uh, no. He, that he was yeah. involved in a mid-air collision. Presumably the tower is looking Jeff. at all of this going, uh, just stand uh, by. If I, why didn't the controller just say, no, don't don't go anywhere, just stop there? Because you haven't a clue what systems... I know, I know, I, I agree with you. Let's talk about that here in a second. We'll play the rest of it. <laughs> sure. Tower, I'm going to taxi on Alpha here back to this uh, northwest corner of the signature ramp. Kilo 970, Roger approved as requested, and we'll get a crew out to you also. Roger. So here's some uh, pictures of the uh, Key Lime uh, Swearingen Metroliner with a big chunk missing, and then also there was a picture of the uh, of the Cirrus. Um, let's see, I need to remove this, and we're back. Um, and a picture of the Cirrus after it uh, uh, alighted 
on the ground, probably not very softly. I, I hear that uh, if you use that uh, Cirrus aircraft parachute system or whatever CAP stands for, <laughs> I always get yeah, that Cirrus wrong. Cirrus airframe, airframe uh, parachute system. Parachute system. Anyway, I hear that it's not, not a nice soft landing, but you know, hey, you'll live through it most likely. Um, so I noticed he'd opened the doors for speed brakes. Did you notice that? Yeah, I don't now. think that's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so okay, let's let's go back a few steps. Um, the uh, one thing I, I have a question for you, Steph. You may or may mm-hmm. not know the answer to this. I'm kind of confused mm-hmm. because uh, at first, before Bass Aviation came out with this and put everything together, there I found mm-hmm. on Live ATC separate uh, audio. And and the tower mm-hmm. controller has the, they're like two different voices, and correct. I looked up the um, the ten uh, nine airport diagram for uh, Centennial Field, and it only has one frequency listed for the tower. But I'm what it seems to me that there were two tower frequencies, one for the one. Yeah, I'm sure there were two tower frequencies. They split it. Okay, um, maybe there was like a NOTAM or something that said you know we're operating. Uh, there might not have. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Actually, I could look it up. Why wouldn't they have it on this airport? Because I see the frequencies here, and there's only one tower frequency. Anyway, I was a little confused by that. I'm easily confused. Could they not have both controllers on the same frequency? Uh, it's they possible. were not on the same frequency. I don't okay. think they were. Yeah, it's, they weren't because I don't think you can hear the. Um, yeah, I don't think the Metroliner could hear what the Cirrus was hearing from the different controllers. Yeah, and that they're not broadcast. They're not broadcasting on the same frequency. They right. keep them separate. So that might be because like, it's it's a very high volume. Class Delta Airport, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, um, and yeah, it's it's a lot of traffic going in there all day long. So, so I I'm wondering if that might be maybe a, a factor, uh, maybe a small factor in all of this. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that too. Okay. If you, yeah, we'll add that to the list because I think it is. But okay, um, but I think uh, in my own opinion, I'm thinking that the Cirrus pilot um, thought that the traffic that was being called out to him was that same traffic, the one that was in the same pattern that he was in ahead of him for the right runway. And uh, I'm not convinced that he was actually looking for and actually sighted the Metroliner that was coming in to the uh, to the parallel runway. But again... So the- I could actually see a lot of different scenarios here mm-hmm. um, from the Cirrus's perspective. So they called traffic in sight. The first traffic that had been called to them was traffic that they were following in the mm-hmm. same right-hand pattern for 1-7 right. Um, and it was, you know, they're 1 o'clock ahead of them on the base leg. So they're following them. Mm-hmm. They did call out to the Cirrus the Metroliner traffic. Um, and then they just said traffic in sight. But it's never clear which traffic. It's never clear that the Cirrus is acknowledging that they have the additional traffic in right. sight. So perhaps they did not see them. And, you know, it, <clears throat> excuse me. Losing my uh, losing my voice there for half a second. Um, if they're at the same altitude, roughly, and they're not moving relative to one another in, you know, their field of vision, that can actually be very difficult to pick out. Especially when you're looking for other things. You're in a busy terminal environment. You're, you know, concentrated on landing phase. So you should be looking for all those things, but it can still be very hard to see. Yes. And- oh, absolutely. Because if you're on a collision, you're on a constant bearing. Uh, which means Correct. there's no relative movement uh, across the windshield, uh, which means you've really got to be staring at the right spot to see it. And yeah, exactly. If there's no, if nothing moves in your field of vision, if, you're t- if it's just a relative constant there, it's very hard for your eyes and your brain to pick that out as being something to be 
aware of. The other factor, I think, you know, in that in the second uh, call that the Cirrus made, acknowledging that he had that traffic in sight, and it was all included in the the landing clearance as well. So I think that might be, you know, uh, a factor. Yeah. And the the Cirrus traffic was never pointed out to the Metroliner, just the just the Cessna, Cessna that was traffic. ahead of the Cirrus, and he never acknowledged that he saw that traffic either. He just said looking for traffic, right. Now, to the uh, metro liner, the Cirrus would be more or less pointing straight at him. Mm -hmm. He would have to look, you know, if it's single pilot, so he's sitting on the left, presumably sitting in the left seat, he would have to look 90 degrees to his right across and out the window that direction. He may not have ever had a view of the Cirrus. Mm -hmm. And you can, I mean, you can see where the Cirrus hit the aft portion of portion of the fuselage there. He probably never saw the Cirrus. No. And the frontal area of a Cirrus is pretty small. It's a, it's it is, a yes. sleek yeah. airplane, so it's sure. not going to be hard to see sure. when it's coming directly at you. Yes. Oh, it's not going to be easy to see. Right, sorry. right. Mm-hmm. So when I first heard this, Nick, I had the same response. It's like, wh- why would he taxi the airplane? I mean, I'm thinking if, if I was in a mid-air collision, <laughs> yeah. I would stop straight ahead on the runway or at least just pull off to the side a little bit. I wouldn't go all the way and, you know, and taxi to the signature ramp. The, the fixed base operation ramp. But then I realized, oh, he just thought it was an engine failure. If I just had a right engine fail and I was looking outside at it and thinking, well, I don't see anything dripping. It's not on fire. Yeah, I'll go ahead and move this thing out of the way so I don't impact the operation. And I could just move sure. over Especially the at a smaller airport yeah. like that. You know, it's still a class. It's not a big international airport. But, but then I realized, yeah. oh, it's because he had no idea that he was in a midair collision and that a big, I mean, we're talking a huge chunk of this. I'm really amazed at this, this Metro liner and how it still managed. The tail didn't fall off. It's a sturdy airplane. Wow. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I I mean, there must be a lot of structure still Mm -hmm. left in the belly of that uh, aircraft to keep the whole back end from uh, flapping off because uh, I think it was incredibly lucky to get away with that. Well, let's see. Both were. Uh, somebody was there to see the uh, Cirrus uh, floating down um, its in its uh, parachute. There we go. Uh, He's saying, well, I'm not sure what he's saying. It's in Spanish. Oh, look, free airplane. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, big toy airplane, he says. Oh, look. Oh, tell us what rights. I didn't catch all of it. Um, So you were asking earlier how fast, so... Uh, from the Cirrus CAPS guide, it's uh, after parachute deployment, Cirrus aircraft will be descending vertically at approximately 17 knots. Oh, well. So that's how fast it comes out. Yeah, so that's like uh, close to 20 miles per hour. Um, yeah. Is that equivalent to like a parachute landing fall kind of velocity approaching? If you didn't do anything to, yeah, and no wind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean like a, an all round parachute, yeah. not uh, the kind of. You know, of I, I don't know what the descent rates are on those, yeah. to be fair. But it's it's like uh, from what I remember in the Air Force uh, parachute landing fall training, it's some, like jumping off a ten or eleven foot tall wall. So it's yeah. not it's not uh, gentle. But landing, but landing on your backside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. can't do a parachute roll to absorb. No, you can't. Yeah, you just no. have to You're just you know, absorb it. Whack. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> right you know, you think spine. about it. It's, a, it's the equivalent of like a twenty mile an hour fender bender in your car. Mm-hmm. Um. The other um, little video that I wanted to play here, and you know, we'll, you'll remember that I mentioned the Cessna that was kind of last; it was behind the Cirrus ah, SR twenty yes. two in the story. in the that pattern, uh, and instructed not to. Well, here I'll play it, and but it's it's 
an interesting um, an interesting twist, I think, to this whole thing. So. So the Cessna two five one pilot did this recreation using Google Earth. And uh, if you're listening to the audio, you should uh, definitely play the link that we'll have there so you can see what he put together. Do not overshoot the final too late. Um. So he has kind of a breakdown of these the two airplanes involved in the midair. Sarah six Delta Julie, if you hear this transmission, we have emergency vehicles zero direction. Cessna two five one, do not overshoot final. There is an aircraft that is in distress just south of Cherry Creek Reservoir. Yeah, they just pulled two two five one. Cessna two five one. If you can give me an accurate location, we would appreciate it. They're about two miles. By those buildings before. right off uh, three five. Yeah, I see a parachute. Yeah, the uh, parachute is just south of the reservoir. Is uh, in the uh, in the airport uh, vicinity, just south of the reservoir, correct? Yeah, about a mile from the reservoir. Okay. Six four three three two can confirm the parachute was directly in front of Do we get to hear about the hawk? Thank you. No, I don't think so. holding short of one seven at Bravo eight. In the vicinity. Okay, there's some video of the uh, another angle of the Cirrus and the parachute, and then I think we have a still picture of the fire department coming out and the Mer- uh, the Metroliner with the big chunk. Missing. Yeah, that that is unbelievable, isn't it? It is. Mm-hmm. Thank the and Lord then, they didn't have passengers back there. <laughs> and he, this is the best part of here's the story. The, twist. Well, the, guy, the great part of the story. The, yeah, the guy that was just putting together this video here. In two five one. Yeah, Cessna two five one, who was a you know, don't overshoot the final because there's a you know, there was an incident. It was his first solo flight. Yep. And there's a picture here of him <laughs> with his little, you know, the T-shirt, well, you know, cut your T-shirt off. And it's yeah, uh, shirt showing, tail. And, yeah, uh-huh. shirt tail. And let's uh, hope it's not his last. <laughs> right. I like the uh, what they drew on his shirt, though. Yeah, it's here got we go. The collision and the <laughs> parachute. First solo, 512, <laughs> well, 2021. <traffic> <laughs> yeah, it says traffic to follow and has a, like a little picture of the Cirrus with the parachute. <laughs> Yeah. How do I follow that, sir? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great? Well, don't go where they went. That's that, for sure. That is. <laughs> that is. I mean, uh, th- th- there's a lesson that he will never forget. I mean, he is always going to drop his wing and check finals on his and finals. And not turn, overshoot final when there's yep. um, yes. opposing bases. Well, not, oh, not yes. really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There well, not really, because the <laughs> Metroliner was straight in. But I'm not um, exactly. But what you uh, the thing, just like the incident with uh, the uh, flight instructor Ben uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the student was on his you know, introductory flight, and now this one out there on their on his you know first solo flight. Wow, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't For make solo. this stuff up. Yeah, very memorable. Talk about memorable. I mean, mm-hmm. he he kept oh, yeah. his calm and cool too, and was able yeah. to you know give important information, and then very impressed, and, and also with the work lightning. that he does That's with uh, whatever program he was using with mm-hmm. Google Earth to kind of you know, you'll just have to look at that link, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, again, um, and great 
job by the uh, uh, the Metro Liner pilot. Now, had he known what had really happened, maybe his voice would have sounded sounded a little bit different. Uh, but because <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there've been a lot of comments, especially like, "Wow, he sounded so calm, cool, and collected." I'm like, "Well, you know, he just thought he had a, and he was on, you know, final for the runway, so." I mean, do okay, those things have land? a proper cop just a curtain, or, or I think. is it just a curtain, or what? I'm assuming yeah, that they have. they must because otherwise it would have gotten really, you know, the the sound would change, noisy, change drafty. Anyway. Yeah. I think you know it's a, it was a cargo there, version right? of the yeah. metro, so maybe they do have like a solid door, like to keep the the cargo from coming up into the cockpit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Talking about bed. a crazy, and then you know, the fact that nobody was injured <laughs> at all on this. Yeah, I mean, this had the best outcome you could possibly think of yeah. for this the accident that actually occurred. Absolutely, a real tribute to the safety systems in the Cirrus. I think it's mm-hmm. fantastic, and to the strength mm-hmm. uh, and reliability of the yeah. Metro line. Just good stuff all just around. Superb. Uh, so there you have yeah. it. That's our first news item. Wish they could all be like that. That was exciting. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It was exciting and a good outcome. Right. Happy and, endings. You know, it was they interesting plot twists. always have a happy ending, that's for sure. Happy ending. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, this is one of those, yeah, happy ending. And, and mm-hmm. you know, you can feel good learning things from this um, incident as well. There's something right. for every pilot out there to take away okay. from this. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing more mm-hmm. about that. Uh, accident uh, in the future. But until then, why don't we move on? Oh, wait. Uh, Low Approach. Somebody named Low Approach in the YouTube chat says, I flew metros. There's usually no bulkhead between the cabin and the cockpit. But I mean, did you fly the cargo version or the passenger version? Interesting. Low Approach or whatever your name was. I'm sorry. I've already forgotten. Um, Yes. I can yeah, imagine right. that maybe there are approach. different configurations as well True. for different yeah. um, operators, different specifications. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Excellent. Uh, let's move on to our second item. Um, this is a final report of an Inuit de Havilland uh, DH-8, um, Dash-8, Dash-300, uh, at uh, Shefferville, Quebec on January 20th, 2020. Thank you. Uh, an Air Inuit De Havilland Dash 8300, registration Charlie Golf X ray Alpha India, performing flight 820 from Quebec to uh, Shefferville with 42 passengers and three crew, was landing in Shefferville at 1109 local time, midday, when the crew received a touched runway indication. The aircraft rolled out without further incident and taxied to the apron. They probably didn't have. That's interesting. My, my landings were always so you know. smooth. I needed a warning yeah. to tell me yeah. that I'd actually You're on the runway, down. Captain Nick. <laughs> hey, you're on down. the ground. You can, you can, uh, hey, you can relax. The Canadian there. TSB um, said, uh, there's a missing word there. The Canadian TSB said that the aft fuselage contacted the runway surface, resulting in damage. The TSB rated the occurrence an accident and opened a Class 3 investigation. On May 4th, 2021, they released their final report, concluding the probable causes of the accident were the pilots forgot to perform the descent checklist and realized this at an inopportune time when the pilot monitoring was providing a position report. And this position report he's talking about is like a position that where they were in the traffic pattern because they were pretty low to the ground at this point and very close to uh, landing, uh, which is amazing to me that they were 
worried about the dissent check at that point. Anyway, uh, given the ambiguities and contradictions in the stabilized approach guidelines, the captain interpreted that he was allowed to continue the approach below 500 feet above the aerodrome elevation, although the flaps had not been set to 35 degrees and the final checklist had not been completed. Yeah, that's like, what? I know. I don't know about it. Ambiguities? Ambiguities. <laughs> Contradictions? It doesn't sound like no. a very good stabilized approach guideline. Yeah, I've read a lot of these stabilized they're approach usually criteria. Pretty and they're black usually and white. Plain as, yeah, exactly. I'll leave this guy alone. It was he plain as plain can be. Uh, <laughs> communicating with the flight. By the way, he had a lot of he had a lot of hours. A lot. He should know better than that. Uh, let's see what else. What was I going to say here? Commun- uh, let's see. Uh, communicating with the flight attendant to confirm the cabin status and performing the descent checklist during final approach added to the pilot's workload, which was already heavy. Uh, luckily, uh, the cabin attendant, uh, by looking out the window and just sensing things and being aware of the situation, realized that they were going to be landing soon. And she had already done all the things that she needed to do before landing, which was good. Um, mm-hmm. Let's see. The combination of the visual conditions and the plan continuation bias prompted the pilots to continue managing the height and speed deviations past the stabilized approach gate. Yeah, well past. Uh, when the aircraft passed 500 feet above the airport elevation, the pilots who were dealing with a heavy workload passed the stabilized approach gate without noticing it and continued the approach, which was de facto unstable. At the time of the flare, the aircraft no longer had enough energy to stop the rate of descent solely by increasing pitch attitude. And the instinctive reaction to increase the pitch attitude combined with the hard landing resulted in the aft fuselage striking the runway, causing major damage to the aircraft structure and uh yeah so basically i I think he was coming in so high and hot that the power was all the way back and i I would you know in the jet i would say all the throttles were back to idle i don't know what the equivalent would be in a dash eight um because i know it's it doesn't work quite the same way but the power was not where it was supposed to be where it normally would be on a on a short which is one of the stabilized approach criteria Mm -hmm. yes normally You've got to have the throttles up away from idle. Yeah, and so because of that, the air, the uh, the speed in the in the report, which we'll have a link to in the show notes, uh, talks about the fact that the I think the computed approach speed was like ninety nine knots or something like that, and this had dropped below you know six at least six knots below that ref speed, and so they go back to you know to flare the airplane and. There's there's nothing for it to work with as far as energy, and it just slammed tail first down onto the uh, on the runway. Let me show you a picture. Uh, I need to share again, and uh, just bear with me here. I'm just looking at this. They completed their final check as the aircraft was passing through 100 feet AGL. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's not. Yeah, that's very high that's, at all. Yeah, a little late. A little late, for sure. Oh, here, I know what I need to do. I need to do this. Okay. You just passed half an hour, Jeff. Okay. Thank you, Liz. Actually, I'm going to read that whole paragraph because that about sums it up for me. You can really kind of picture what was happening with the flight path here. It says, as the aircraft reached 200 feet AGL with a de- rate of descent of approximately 1,000 feet per minute still, um, Airspeed of 120 knots, 1.5 degrees, nose up. They set the flaps to 35 degrees and prop speed to 1,200 RPM. And then they completed the final check as the aircraft was passing through 100 feet. So, Yikes. Yeah. 
Okay. Lots of stuff I happening mean, there on very short final. I, I think you've just got to step wise. this back to the point at which they should have uh, started their descent briefing and descent checks and realized just how quickly the guy got behind the airplane, which is an odd thing to say. You don't get quickly behind the airplane. You're, you're very slow when you're behind the airplane. <laughs> the airplane's well ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just never caught up, did he? He just no. ne- ne- never got Mm-mm. there. And he never got to the point either when he realized, this is stupid. What am I doing? I need to go around and, yes. you know, do this properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. The uh, yeah, Everything was pointing toward, uh, don't continue with this. Um, you're unstabilized. Go you got to go around. Because you can always yeah. go around. You can always go around. Well, that's right. And, you know, it's so sad because this is exactly why Stabilized approach criteria were brought in to, for everybody, and it's rammed home to everybody. Uh, and yet, still, people manage to blow straight through them without realizing. I'm Did you see their shrugging my shoulders? Their their schedule that day. There were uh, eleven legs. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's what uh, I thought. Wow, typical Canadian work ethic. Uh, okay, oh, Liz is saying typical Canadian work ethic. Right. <laughs> um, which, well, she's probably right. Um, but uh, this was not at the end. Uh, this wasn't the, the 11th segment. This was like the fourth or fifth. It was some, somewhere in the middle of their day uh, when this happened. So, you know, you, it's hard to say that fatigue had anything to do with this, uh, but maybe it did. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just bad, poor decision making, I think, by the, uh, by the commander here in, in this incident. There's a picture. And, and sadly also by the pilot monitoring because he's the one that's not under quite so much pressure. Mm-hmm. He's the one that really ought to be sitting back realizing that this is not going to work and he should be calling the go-around. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of his jobs. Yep. If you realize that you haven't hit st- the stabilized criteria by 500 feet, you order the go-around even if you're not flying the airplane or not the captain. Right. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I think it's, I like that they talk about plan continuation bias in here. So, you know, mm-hmm. press on itis. I think we used to yeah. call that. <laughs> What's that? Press yeah. on itis. Press on itis. Press on itis. Get home itis. Yeah. yeah. Press on yeah. itis. <laughs> yep. Dave's yeah. got a good point Give here. Give it a fancy name and it sounds a lot better. Mm-hmm. Dave Ellison says in the live audience 11 legs equals no time to go around in that workday. <laughs> yeah. We don't have time for that. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. What I find interesting is the little comment, I can't quite find it, but I have it in memory, uh, by the company saying that they had an absolute no um, criticism uh, of anyone if ever they did a go-around. They, they, if you did a go-around, that, that was yeah. absolutely fine. They, were, they, were, they never had a complete policy of not criticizing their crews, uh, even if it was a badly flown approach and they were unstabilized, so they went around. There's, there's, was, they weren't going to get invited to, you know, speak to the chief pilot in a one-sided conversation. Uh, so, you know, it was all self-imposed, this mm-hmm. pressure. Yeah, mm-hmm. unnecessarily completely. Yeah. A non-punitive go-around policy. Okay. Oh, that's the, that was what I was trying to say, but it, <laughs> and what, and what, well, that's Dale Williams helped us out in the live audience. That's why we have uh, our live well, in the, audience In the report, here. it says no fault, no blame. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was it called? The just, just culture or something just like that? Just culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. safety. Yeah. Part culture. of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. All right. So 
Yeah, basically. I don't know. If, was this thing totaled or did were they able to repair it? I'm wondering. I don't, I don't know. know. I, f- I forgot exactly what the, um, uh, the G-force was when they contacted the runway, but it was something between two and three Gs, I think, when they hit. Yeah, it didn't seem to be as much as I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But, of course, when you when you land on the fuselage and not the wheels, yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot of... It's not good. Um, a little bit more force, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's not much to absorb the impact. Nope. All right. If you want to read more about this incident, the full report is um, going to be in the show notes for waiting for you. Mm. All right. Um, continuing to move on here, a preliminary report of that accident that we talked about earlier in Trigana, uh, Boeing 737-400 freighter uh, from Jakarta to Makassar, Indonesia, with four crew, was climbing out of uh, Halim's runway 24, blah, blah, blah. Uh, when the crew stopped the climb at about uh, 3,000 feet due to the failure of the right engine, the crew entered a hold while attempting to correct the problem and subsequently returned to uh, Jakarta's Halim Airport for landing on runway 24 about 11.28, right before noon. About uh, 35 minutes after departure, following touchdown, the right main gear collapsed, and the aircraft skidded on the runway on the left main gear, nose gear, and right engine pod. During the last stages of the roll out, the aircraft veered off the runway and came to a stop with all gear collapsed. There were no injuries, and the aircraft sustained substantial damage. On May 3rd, 2021, Indonesia's KNKT released their preliminary report. Um, it says on board this flight were two pilots, one engineer, and one flight operation officer. According to the weight and balance sheet, the flight carried 16,672 kilograms of general cargo, and the takeoff weight was 60,695 kilograms, which is uh, 133,835 pounds. The pilot command acted as pilot flying, and the second in command acted as pilot monitoring. At uh, 10.51 local time, the aircraft departed runway 24, and about two minutes later, the pilot monitoring reported to the controller that the right engine had failed and they wanted to return. The aircraft approached landing with one engine in op and configured with flap 15 for landing with the aircraft weight uh, now about 131,000 pounds. The aircraft touched down with 1.79 G vertically and minus 5.4 G laterally. Then shortly the right main landing gear failed. The aircraft stopped on the left. So I guess it had some kind of a side uh, force uh, when they touched down, not going straight down the right, runway. I think it was more to do with the fact that although they don't make it clear that they didn't land on the runway. They landed in the undershoot, didn't they? Um I I can't remember if this is the one they were, where they landed in the undershoot or not, but it um do you, let's see, I'm kind of scrolling down. Oh, no. Okay. Um uh, I I might be thinking of There was another, another one, one in Africa, but I don't think that oh, that was in Africa. The, the one that I think that you're thinking about was somewhere in Africa. This was in Indonesia. Okay. Okay. Um, right. Forget that. So man. yeah, but I was thinking the same thing actually when when I started reading this, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is a different one. Um, an interesting thing. There, there's a picture here that shows the. Um, uh, here, let me turn that and add it to the stream. The um, the picture here shows the um, marks, the tire marks, main right main gear marks on the runway, and it, they're, they're kind of going zigzaggy. 
um, in a in a very tight pattern. Um, so it looks like I don't know if that was due to the hard touchdown and lateral G forces or what, but uh, apparently I, I think one of the wheels detached. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that might have been the the wheel wobbling. Uh-huh. Um, uh, one of the wheels came off and flew off down the, air, the airfield, I believe. Okay. Um, winds weren't bad. Uh, zero six zero at six knots. And uh, let's see the aircraft. Were there birds in the area. Uh, birds were in the vicinity. Apparently, we've uh, gotten that report. Uh, but apparently, you know, Liz, that they're always yeah. in the area in the yeah. vicinity of the airport. Um. The aircraft touched down in the touchdown zone. Okay, this was in the in the touchdown okay. zone. Okay, all right. I must be mm-hmm. thinking of something else. Yeah, Sorry, and then that. shortly after, both wheels of the right main landing gear detached. Both wheels of the right main landing gear detached. Mm-hmm. Uh, the controller mm-hmm. noticed sparks appearing from the aircraft and pressed the crash bell. Uh, the controller informed the pilots of the other aircraft that the runway was blocked by the landing aircraft and identified fire on one of the engines. A few seconds later, the pilot monitoring called the controller uh, whether any fire, whether there was any fire, and and the controller replied that fire was visible on the left side of the aircraft. Um, anyway, the aircraft was substantially damaged. All three landing gear collapsed. Eventually, uh, both engines, both engine mounts broken. Uh, two tires and one brake assembly of the right main landing gear were detached, while the left main landing gear wheels remained intact until the aircraft stopped. And. Uh, in this case, the captain, 34 years old, uh, 6,228 hours total, 5,208 on type. So a lot of experience here on this uh, 737. The pilot flying, oh, the first officer, the pilot monitoring, uh, he was 22, 1,255 hours total, and 1,084 hours on type. So relatively inexperienced. Um but he wasn't the one uh, flying at the time. Anyway, um, so it, it has some more data or data here for uh, what happened with the engine and such. But uh, it looks like the engine wasn't, I mean, that was a problem, obviously. That's why they had to return. Uh, but as far as what happened to the airplane after it touched down, really has nothing to do with the fact that the right engine had failed, in my opinion, anyway. Um, no, no, you're right. And the weather wasn't that bad. It was a little hazy, a little light rain, but the wind was relatively light, mm-hmm. a little variable, but very light. So I don't know. There's a picture of the uh, airplane off. I mean, of did the you runway. let it get slow? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We don't have all that really... information yet. No, no. we don't. More know. just factual about the events that happened once they touched down. Yeah. yeah. You know, when I looked at it, I thought 1.79 G vertically doesn't seem a lot, Mm-mm. but I guess it must be. You know, I normally th- judge a, a landing by a rate of descent, mm-hmm. not a number of Gs. It would be interesting uh, to know, Nick, um, how much like a a 300 foot per minute descent G force is, or a 500 yeah. foot per minute. You know, I, I, it would be interesting to hear um, how that yeah. equates to G forces. Uh, maybe Perhaps we'll find yeah. out in the final report. Yeah. Perhaps there are some airplanes now with I'm, the the sensors and everything else that can give you that kind of information. I don't know. Mm. Yes, Steph. Well, it's not oh, I was going to say, I'm sure that's, that's just a sure. mathematical calculation. Yeah. 
Okay, well, were you going to go ahead and do that for us then? No, so. I don't like math. Okay. Get, your, get your calculator out. <laughs> um, sure, somebody get, get in slipstick. I think Uber right. Frank. Here's my the, abacus. Uber Frank mm. in the chat room is uh, working on it. Yeah, he's going to. He's getting oh, the calculator out and he's going to do the calculations for us. Thank you, excellent, Frank. Let us know. <laughs> yeah, let us know. Uh, sorry, Frank. I didn't mean to pick on you. Um, all right, moving on. This is an interesting one. Doesn't really. There's not a lot of information here. It's, there are a lot of big question marks I, I in my like, mind. I feel like they left, they omitted things. <laughs> Whoever gave the yes. information to this uh, news source yes. left out information that probably is kind of known. But I would anyway. think so. Yeah, this is from the Kansas City Star. Uh, plane flew without a pilot for 1.5 miles. Nebraska cops say. Um, so. Let's see. For one and a half miles Tuesday evening, a vintage aircraft soared the Nebraska skies at heights of 200 feet. There was only one problem. No one was on board. (laughs) A ghost plane. The plane was undergoing maintenance at the Central City Airport when at some point the airplane began to travel down the runway. (laughs) Okay. Huh? (laughs) Okay. So so we need to back up and say at some point it was undergoing maintenance and someone... (laughs) Hand propped it, and Oopsie. intentionally or not, yeah, know, it, uh, forgot yeah. the They didn't, get, in, they didn't get into the plane. Throttle was open, yeah, <laughs> and it mags, happened to be on, on the runway. So how yeah. did it get to the runway? <laughs> well, it depends. Was it just like a grass field somewhere? Uh, you know, could have, been. could have been. I don't know, but we do have some pictures of the after the sad aftermath of this. This is so sad. Beautiful J three Cub. They're, Cub. They're they're great little airplanes. Yeah. I mean, 1937, what a fantastic uh, age to get to. But here's mm-hmm. another one. This is one that I would enter in a um, in a photo contest. It's a nice uh, sunrise in the background. Yeah, it's beautiful <laughs> scenery. It is. Some cornfield in Nebraska. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, could you, you know, just this... turn that picture the other way around? It might look nicer. <laughs> oh, you know, the airplane you mean? <laughs> Yeah, well, or the whole thing upside down? I don't know. I, yeah, I could probably do that. Down, yeah. Let me see if I can figure that out with this. You know, uh, I think they could probably do. Do you, do you remember that um, uh, older aircraft that got uh, had some food left in it up in Alaska, and the bear oh, attacked it, trying bear. to get it? I'm pretty sure they could probably just take some duct tape and fix this one up too. Just kind of smush it, smooth oh, it back see, out a little looks, bit. Well done, Jeff. That looks so <laughs> much <you>. nicer. <laughs> It does. Yeah. It's still the, the, the wings a little crumpled. A little crunchy. Yeah. <laughs> crunchy yeah. in the front end. Yeah. And the wheels are, oh, I don't so. think that's where the landing gear normally is. No, you don't normally get no. two wheels on one side, do you? <laughs> no. No. All right. Uh, that's sad. And, and they're such pretty little airplanes as well. They are. Okay. Let's put this thing back to where it was. There we go. Anyhow, yeah. that's a. Sad story. I don't know. It looks pretty much totaled, but I don't know. Maybe they can rebuild the thing. Flag in. Not probably not worth the cost of fixing it. Yeah. If you even could, not sure. Don't you just get a bicycle pump and and inflate it again? Yeah. Um. Hmm. Don't think so. Okay. All right. Um. Let's see. This next one uh, was sent in by Robert Legal, or Legal. No, it's probably Legal. Um. It's a, he said, pretty serious incident. And uh, it's um, got some um, video, a YouTube video that goes along with it. Another one from Bass Aviation. Real Aviation Communications. 
on the 24th of April, 2021, ASL Airlines Boeing 737-400 performing flight out of Porto, Lisbon, uh, Portugal, was cleared for takeoff while a vehicle was performing a runway inspection. Pilots noticed the vehicle during takeoff and sent a safety report to authorities. Well, this taxi via Delta Line of 35 reports ready. Delta Line of 35 reports. I love the flashing lights on the truck. Yeah. <laughs> Liz says she likes the flashing lights on the truck. Very cool. Okay, the airplane's ready for departure. Four nine five and nine Roger. Winds calm. Runway three five and section Delta cleared for takeoff. Three minutes frequency. Delta two takeoff. Runway three five. frequency. Soft speaker. Oh wait, should I back that up? So yeah, for some reason it didn't have the voices of yeah. Delta two takeoff. Runway three five. Okay, clear for takeoff. And he's rolling down the runway, and then the vehicle says, is that an aircraft on the runway? The tower says, affirm, move and exit immediately. <laughs> and the airplane lifts off right and flies right over the top of this for nine five nine ago, you cleared for takeoff, and uh, there was uh, a car on the runway. So for nine five nine, yes, I, I was uh, aware. I told him to to leave the runway to the to the left. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have to make a report for that? That's quite dangerous, you know. Uh, say again, please. Do we have to, uh, to report uh, that uh, incident because it's quite dangerous? Yes, you do. Yes. If you wish, you, you, you can make you, the report. If you wish. If you want to. Yes, but I'm not. Uh, I wasn't uh, just confirm, will you make the report? <laughs> I don't know. So I'm still thinking about that. That's really a, a big incident. But uh, I don't like to make report because I know that uh, uh, you will be in trouble, you know? <laughs> just say <laughs> all, all that. You can let an aircraft take off with a, a, a car. Uh, on the runway, you know. That's not cool. 44959, uh, I'm aware of that. That wasn't me, but uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the the ground operations are aware of the situation. We <laughs> does not do nothing because if I reject the takeoff, I may be in the car. So it, it would be better to take off uh, that, that case. But uh, yeah, you have a radar on the ground to, 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 to see or to check that? And it was a misunderstanding here in the tower. Uh, we have uh, also a uh, ground radar. Oh, shoot. Well, T4959er, uh, uh, Roger, we'll report the situation as well. You can contact now Madrid Control 136 decimal 355. Bye bye. 136 uh, T5 uh, 5 equates T4959. As a commander, I need to do uh, uh, the report. Uh, sorry for that. Yeah, no problem. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> it will be a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gonna be a problem. <laughs> it was just a misunderstanding. I love that. Uh, yeah, it was just. Uh... We well, I knew about him. I told him to exit to the left. Oh yeah, I was aware. The grass. I was aware. Doesn't look like there's a taxi right down there. <laughs> yeah, it's just a yeah. very close. Was very like just kind of indifferent about all of it from the tower there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we kind yeah. of knew about it, but it wasn't well, our I, fault. It was almost like the tower was going. I wonder if I've got away with this. I wonder if he's going to get off the frequency without saying anything. <laughs> That's yeah. uh, that was a man that could have been a very major aircraft accident yes. right there. Yes. Um, wow. 
Kelly says uh, the tower controls runway. Doesn't the tower control runways? It's the tower's fault. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that the, there's blame that can be spread out quite a bit, but all of it in that um, control tower, the ground controller and the tower controller. Uh, they have ground radar. They have every reason to know that that vehicle's out there, and uh, they forgot, I guess, <laughs> was doing an inspection. Oops. Yeah. So yeah. it's like the coordination between the two controllers, but most airfields, in, or in my experience, most towers, uh, there's only one guy controls the runway. Mm-hmm. The ground controller takes control of everything that's off the runway, yeah. but the runway, you know, vehicles and all, is down to one bloke. So um, I don't know. Perhaps they do it differently uh, in Portugal. I really hate it when they do that. When they when they split the responsibilities and in the like yeah. the the air, aircraft here uh, couldn't hear any of this stuff and communication with the uh, the vehicle on the runway. And I don't like that. Yeah, no, oh, how come the the vehicle wasn't listening out to the tower frequency as well? For example. Yeah. To radio, so he could hear the guy being given a takeoff clearance. Mm-hmm. He would have instantly gone, "Hang on a minute, well, he, oh, I'm on the runway. I I'm on the runway. I don't want to be on the runway <laughs> if an aircraft is taking off. That sounds dangerous." Exactly. <laughs> he eventually saw the, you know, it was evident that there was well, an yeah. airplane on the runway coming right at him. <laughs> is that an aircraft on yeah. the runway? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Please, please leave the runway. <laughs> Move out of their mm-hmm. way. Yeah, just just vacate the runway, like into the grass. Crazy. Wow. All right. Uh, continuing on, our last item in our news notebook for this show. Airbus takes delivery of the first A321XLR rear center fuel tank. This is from Simple Flying. Uh, Gustav uh, Juliusson uh, sent this in to us. The first rear center tank for the A321XLR has been completed and handed over by Premium Aerotech. The new tank provides the the additional fuel capacity required to send the XLR to the longest of ranges and is at the heart of the new Airbus aircraft. Would somebody like to continue for me? I'm going to see if I can find a photo that we can put on the uh, screen. Sure. I'll continue. It says the rear center tank, or RCT, is a crucial element of the Airbus A321 XLR, giving additional fuel capacity for the long-range narrow-body aircraft um, two and a half years ago, uh, after Premium Aerotech was commissioned to produce it at its Augsburg factory, the unit is complete and has been handed over to Airbus. Um, so they're congratulating each other about it. Ray, Ray. Good job. <laughs> I was Good trying job. to see if there was yeah. any... Okay, here's here's what the, the, the uh, technical very... aspects here. Uh, it will hold up to 12,900 liters of fuel. That's useless measurement to me um, far more than <laughs> several additional 13 tons <laughs> okay far more than several That's additional center tanks can hold in the a321 um, lr for example and overall the a321 xlr will be capable of holding around forty thousand liters of fuel divide that yeah, by 40 tons 3.75 yeah i think let's see 40 divided ranges by... up to 4700 nautical miles I think it's approximately 10,666 gallons. And how much does fuel weigh per gallon? Like 6.8 pounds. 6.8. So that's about a total of 72,500 pounds, roughly. That's a, or not, yeah, pounds. That's a lot of fuel for a narrow body. Mm -hmm. 
anyway. Well, it looks like you'll be able to go directly from uh, London down to the Caribbean, uh, from uh, oh, yeah, Paris, most places in Europe, to New York. Yeah, it's a long way. Wow. Um, I don't think people realize quite how complicated fuel tanks have to be. Um, um, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, there is an awful lot of problems if fuel sloshes around <laughs> in a big tank. <laughs> so there are all sorts of baffles uh, have to be fitted to uh, stop the fuel from uh, shifting around if you accelerate, decelerate, bank too much. Baffling. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and then gauging fuel is also a big uh, problem, get it a- accurate. Uh, I remember when we first got the 340, it took them quite a few years to um, tweak the uh, fuel gauging system. And we could have uh, one or 2% errors, which may not seem a lot. Um, We generally knew what we had on board because we measured how much had been put on. Uh, But um, that's, you know, could have been one or two tons of fuel in error. Uh, so that mm. you know, one or two percent is uh, is it can be quite a lot. So it it requires clever design, and of course this uh, fits in the belly of the aircraft uh, underneath the passengers, so it's got to be uh, you know protected from from the uh, the passengers um, and also between the cargo hulls. So yeah, it's a clever piece of kit, and of course being uh, below the uh, um, the feed from the to the engines, which are where the wings are, uh, feeds to the engines. You've got to always pump fuel out, so you've got to have a really fail-safe pump system because if uh, the centerline tank uh, fails to pump, you you just can't gravity feed that uh, fuel. No. It's going to be stuck there, so you've instantly lost 12 tons of fuel, which is going to be a big problem if uh, you're relying on that towards the end of your flight. Uh, generally speaking, the centerline tank is the first tank to feed and just tops up the wing tanks until it's empty. Um, uh, yeah. It's an interesting uh, piece of kit and gives that airplane a long range. Sure does. I mean, one of the flight segments they're showing an example of on that uh, map is Houston, Texas to Hawaii. That's a very long flight and uh, most of it over the Pacific Ocean, which is uh a place where you wouldn't want that tank to stop doing its <laughs> feeding. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, no, we, we had we had centerline tanks in the three forty, so uh, you know we mm-hmm. uh, we knew all about that and uh, unusable fuel if it failed to feed. All right, very good. Well, that's it for news for this episode, at least this half, and let's get on with this. The Getting to Know Us segment. Look at all those smiling faces and Steph holding that very scary looking needle. Yeah, she's not smiling in that one, is she? Oh, I'm definitely smiling in that one. I think she is, but it's an evil smile. Uh (laughs) Trust me. That needle is just for drying up medications. Just for you, Mr. Bond. Yeah. I, I can tell you from personal experience, it doesn't feel good to stick that particular needle into the side of your finger. Hmm. <laughs> How about someone's back? <laughs> no, we wouldn't use that one for someone's back. <laughs> what would you but, use that one for? Drawing up medications out of bottles. Oh, it has a large gauge so uh, that when, so it doesn't take five years to draw up, you know, a CC of lidocaine. So that's why you said that's for drawing out medications earlier. 
<laughs> so you get it from there into. You're on it, Jeff. Uh, you're on it. Oh, you, you put a different. You needle put a different on. needle on it. Ah, okay. One that's not nearly so How robust. How do you squirt in... it into a smaller syringe? I was thinking to myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh... We're not that complicated when it comes to this stuff, Nick. It's... Well, you never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Steph, how have you been? Yeah. Good, busy. Um, getting kind of settled in at my new day job my new practice. So that's all going well. Um, always seems like there's a bunch of small technical hurdles to be overcome. Anytime you start a new job, it's like passwords don't seem to work quite right. Or, um, you know, the computer that you're using, the printer does, or it's not connected to any printers anywhere, or you can't get your prescriptions to send correctly. So it's been, you know, kind of just ironing out those little wrinkles. Um, but other than that, it's been, it's been great. Um, I've seen some familiar patients and some new ones to me and, uh, just getting set up and settled in. Uh, did some flying last weekend. Um, excuse me. And um, just kind of normal Saturday, Sunday of flying. But interesting in that um, there were other events happening uh, in and around the Charlotte area and South Carolina, uh, notably the the PGA um, uh, events over at Quail Hollow, which is in the Charlotte area. And they had the one of the Goodyear blimps there to um, provide aerial photography services. And um, when the Goodyear blimp is in town, it moors itself um, at the same uh, airfield where we uh, where I fly skydivers. Oh, so neat. that's always kind of interesting. Um, yeah, we, we call it the world's largest tetrahedron. Hedron. So <laughs> when it's on the ground, you know, yeah. it's always pointing into the wind. You know which way it with you where know the exactly blowing. where the wind's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. But we did get a quick chance um, on a weather hold on a wind hole actually to uh, chat with one of their pilots. Um, so that was that was pretty interesting to learn a little bit about the Goodyear blimp. I'm hold, curious. Uh, did they tell you what wind limits they have to? Yes, work to? thirty-five oh. knots on the ground. Oh, that's oh, a lot of wind. Which was significantly higher than we were thinking. Yeah. Because we were on a wind yeah. hold because it was gusting to 20, well, 20 miles an hour on the... Um, How about when they're flying? It doesn't matter. They just well, go with the wind. if you want to go somewhere. <laughs> well, if you want to go somewhere, for sure. So, no, I he mean, said 35... Like, I mean, if you're over the coast and, and it, it blew you out to sea and you couldn't come home I mean, again, it's got, then it's got, that would be a problem. It's got three engines on it. <laughs> it does have Yeah, propulsion. but it's a big fat balloon. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere very fast. I know. Don't get started on the balloon stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Here we go. I know, right? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it was very, very, actually, I was going to pull up, I I did make some notes because I want to make sure I quote this correctly because I thought this was fairly impressive. Did I do it on this phone? You should have done a recording, Stan. I should have. I know. I wasn't, well, I didn't think we were going to get a chance to really talk to anyone. We just kind of wandered over to take a look at it and they came to talk to us. Um, it was something like 300,000 cubic feet of height of, um, helium that they use wow. to keep it inflated. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. Quite. Oh. Quite. And it, it was interesting watching their pre-flight, uh, checks. They have like 20 minutes worth of things to do. Um, a lot of it's control surface checks. A lot of it's, um, a lot of it has to do with their weight and balance. Cause they have a lot of ballast kind of holding it down towards the ground so it's removing that is making sure that all of the air is um all of the helium is in the correct um yeah. i guess portions of the um aerostat the structure sure aerostat. The sandbags yeah, aren't leaking and yeah well like they you know they they removed a bunch of sandbags they 
removed a bunch of water from tanks. Um, huh? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Where were they uh, based, Steph? Somewhere on the East Coast? So uh, they have three. One is based in... One's in California, I believe mm-hmm. one is in Florida, and one is in Ohio. But this one particular one was in Ohio and going back to Florida because one of them was in annual or something, some major check. Oh, okay. So obviously Akron, because that's the headquarters of Goodyear. Goodyear. Um, and then I was wondering if they knew, was it Alpha Bravo Charlie? Is that what he called himself? The uh, uh, the yes. mechanic, the and engineer? Carson, California. Mm-hmm. And Carson, oh, right. yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. California. Yeah. Interesting. Probably. He probably knows. Yeah. I would imagine it's a pretty small community, even if you're Yeah. So in they a did the place. they did the golf tournament on Saturday and then they did the uh NASCAR race in Darlington on Sunday. Cool. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. So did they explain how their advertising board works? We didn't talk about that, no. Because I would have asked them to put uh, APG crew or something on the side <laughs> and take a picture of it. <laughs> sure. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure it was daylight, so we weren't really thinking about the, uh, you know, the light up stuff on the side of the, but that's actually a pretty interesting system from what I understand. I mm-hmm. just don't know any details about it. Yep. And Kelly uh, in the chat room is telling us Long Beach, California, actually Carson, California, to be exact, on the east side of the 405. Yeah, we have actually uh, have an APG community member that sent us in some feedback um, a few episodes mm-hmm. ago, Kelly. Uh, he's a, He works on that thing. He's a mechanic. Um, yeah, I wonder if he could get a picture of us, of uh, our, you know, a, our logo or <laughs> APG on the Should side of easy, his. Should be easy, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. of his machine. L- the least that he could do, I think. ABC, come <laughs> on, do it for us. All right. So, um, anything else, Steph, before we move on? Um. No, that's about it. Okay. For me. Mm-hmm. All right. Nick, how about yourself? You've been busy? Uh, I'm way too busy, to be fair. This has been a, 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 <laughs> a hectic week, uh, but I have enjoyed it because most of it's self imposed. Um, finished off uh, producing the pictures for the big shoot I did, photo shoot I did last week, and then did another photo shoot this morning. Uh, and there you can see a picture of Buddy, the Aww, uh, subject. Buddy. Yeah, sitting in a Adorable. field of buttercups. Yeah. Uh, but uh, a lovely, uh, a very solid uh, Labrador uh, and a very nice lady owner. Um, got some great pictures of him, I think. So that's been uh, um, what I did this morning. Uh, did a lot of walking, so... Um, Actually, suffering a little bit from cramp right now. My legs <laughs> uh, playing a lot of bowls. Um, won every match so far, including the first round of the National Champion of Champions. So pleased with that. Uh, no one, never want to get knocked out on the first round, do you? So mm. at least I'm through to the second round of that. And a game tomorrow, although the weather doesn't look brilliant. But uh, no, that's been it. That's about my week. Sadly, nothing much aviation orientated, which is a shame. But uh, there you go. That's what happens when you're retired. Yeah. Um, did you want to mention that um, someone in our aviation podcasting community uh, had a very special event uh, today? Yes, that's a good idea because um, uh, we were all asked to produce a little video for. Uh, our lovely friend Owen, who uh, has got married today to uh, the superb and very pretty Agnes. I think that's how you correctly yeah. pronounce her mm-hmm. 
name. Nailed it. And uh, so congratulations uh, to them. Well done, uh, you two, uh, from us all. Uh, and, um, you know, we wish you a, a long and happy life together. Congratulations. Marvellous. Yes. Not often we get a marriage in the, uh, in the podcasting world, is it? No, but uh, there's no. going to be another one at the end of this year. Um, oh, yeah, in the APG oh. community. In the APG community, um, oh. one oh. Stephen Ivy is a. Oh, oh, of I hope I'm allowed yeah. to say that on yeah. <laughs> public. Yeah. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm meeting with him tomorrow, actually. Um, so no, day after tomorrow. Excellent. No, Sunday. I did. I did not know. Yeah, that. Sunday. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's engaged to be married. So uh, anyway, well, that's marvelous. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, I got anything else, uh, sir, before, uh, not for me, talk so, a no, little bit. No, no. not a lot to say for me either. Uh, I was on a four day trip Monday through Thursday, uh, flew with, uh, uh, first officer, Jeff. Uh, it's always a lot of fun to have fun with that. Um, you know, first officer, Jeff and captain Jeff, and, and then basically say that, uh, I've decided to call all the flight attendants, Jeff as well, just to make it easy on everyone. Um, <laughs> and, uh, anyway, uh, he's a really nice laid back, um, fun to fly with uh, first officer. So had a great trip and uh, weather was, I, I can't think of any time that the weather was bad or severe or anything like that. It was a pretty good weather trip. So yeah, went to uh, Oklahoma city the first uh, night, um, Bradley international up in uh, Windsor locks, Connecticut on the second night and uh, Rochester, New York, the uh, third night and had some good barbecue at dinosaur in Rochester uh, anyway, great trip. And, uh, also I, and I have to, uh, I have to apologize to one of our, our APG community members who sent me some, uh, gin from his hometown in Germany, uh, Stefan or Stefan. Um, I'm sorry, man. Uh, I don't check the, uh, APG PO box as often as I should. And it's just a small one. It doesn't have room for parcels. So, when somebody does send a parcel like this awesome gin that you sent me <laughs> that, that I'll never get to taste, um, yeah, they put a little notice in there and they basically give me uh, a, a short period of time to take that little piece of paper and go up to the front desk of the post office and, and have them fish it out of the wherever they store it in the back of the uh, post office. And uh yeah, unfortunately, I didn't know that you had Otherwise, sent me anything. Otherwise, they drink your gin? Apparently. Well, they say that they sent it back. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's going back to Germany, honestly. Um, don't know where it actually ended up, uh, but uh, not not to me. So I do apologize, Stefan. Um, very, very nice of you, kind of you, uh, for doing that. And uh, it's not the first time, I, I have to admit, that I've, that I've missed out on a parcel because I don't check it every day or every week. Usually every month. <laughs> uh, so what have you done about that? Jeff? So what I've what have I done about that? Liz asks. Well, what I've done is I've changed the address, the PO box, uh, on all the uh, references to the uh, snail mail address for the APG on the website to my home address. So for you stalkers uh -oh. out there, yeah, now you know exactly where I live. <laughs> Although it wouldn't take a a brain surgeon or a rocket scientist to figure it out by just doing a search on Google. I'm sure that the, my address is out there. Uh, but uh, now it's going to be delivered to my home address. Damn and it, he's not going to miss Jen again. I'm not going to miss Jen again, Liz says, that's for sure. 
Well, and that's so sad because that is a particularly nice gin. It is. Although I I got, yeah, Stefan gave me one and I was so uh, delighted with it. I got my boys to give me another bottle of it for Christmas. The Gin Soul? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think that that one was from Hamburg. Um, yes. And I think that w- what he sent me was a different one, one from his hometown. I don't think Hamburg was his hometown. Um, so it was even a more special one in a special bottle, oh, apparently. No. Yeah. No. So I'm sure he spent a lot of money on that, too. I am so sorry. I Hopefully feel, I really it did make bad. it back to him so he can gift it to someone who will actually actually retrieve it from yeah. him. Well, if I were him, I'd just <laughs> no, drink it. Probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So, so, so think, so think about before you send something to me or any of us, um, well, it's not going to happen now. Now it's going to go directly to my house. So that's okay. We're good. But I was going to say, think about, you know, sending parcels to me because there's, or if you do like send me an email or something and let me know so that I'll, you know, be better about checking it. So that's that. And that's all I had to say about okay. getting to know us for Bad. this week. So, um, thanks, Forrest. Because oh, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> oh, coffee fun! Thank you, Liz. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I see now what you were doing. I, I got it. Okay. Um, I'm a little slow, but I'm pretty stupid. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, get on Aww. with the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Sing it, Liz. She's singing in my ear. The Coffee Fund, Jeff Smith, the one that you all can hear singing in me. Uh, is singing the Java Jive because that's uh, what we do when we talk about our wonderful coffee fun cadre or coffee bar club members. It's your way to support the show financially if you have a few extra dollars or whatever your monetary denomination is hanging around and you want to support us. A couple different ways to do that. One is the coffee fun classic method. And since the last episode, we have two... um, Recurring donators to the Coffee Fun Classic. We have Ma- Mazuts, Karim, and George was in the Leslie. Chat room. Oh, well, hello, Mazuz. Mazuz or uh, George or both? Are they in the chat room? Mazuz was. Mazuz, Mazuz was, was. okay. Yeah. All right. I know he was in the chat room for the uh, that other show, too. And uh, uh, Yeah, he's getting around. Yeah, he gets around. Well, thank you, Mazuz. We do appreciate it. And you as well, George. Uh, the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last episode, we have two new producers, Muhammad Youssef and Stephen Ivy. We were just mentioning Stephen just Shouldn't a moment ago. Is he saving for a wedding? Yeah, he should be saving for a wedding, Liz. What is he doing giving us money? What's maybe wrong with he got you, a Stephen? Raise. Huh? Maybe he got a raise. Oh, yeah. Maybe he got a Good raise. Times maybe his fiance is giving us money. Ah, Liz is suggesting perhaps it's his fiance that's giving us the money. Ooh, marrying right. money. Way yeah. to go. Ooh. Yeah, we like it. Way to go, Stephen. All right. Well, uh, thank you, Muhammad and Stephen, for becoming patrons of the show. We do appreciate it. If you want to learn more about how you, dear listener, can also be part of that great group of folks that support us, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash 
coffee. You'll be glad you did. Okay, now so we're going to go right into the plane. Tale. We're going to go right into this week's installment of the plane tales, and uh, so here we go. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales, leaving them behind. It was the 14th of October, 1975, and a Vulcan V-bomber of 9 Squadron Royal Air Force was on its way from the chilly autumnal winds and rain of Lincolnshire in England to the warm and sunny little island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. On board were seven crew members, which is two more than the normal complement of two pilots in the cramped cockpit and the three rear crew members, the nav radar, nav plotter and air electronics officer in the lower rear compartment. They appear to have been accompanied by a couple of supernumerary crew members who would have been seated on rudimentary jump seats forward of the nav radar and electronic officers' positions. Suffice to say, the crew compartment, both forward and aft, were not spacious before the additional occupants were included. Flying with every seat filled must have made the aircraft uncomfortably cramped. However, they were headed towards the sunny Isle of Malta, and I have no doubt that all were looking forward to having a drink and eyeing up the pretty ladies who frequented the area known as the Gut. Officially called Straight Street, in Valletta, it was an alley full of bars, music halls, restaurants and dodgy hotels that combined a heady concoction of music, cold beer and hot women of dubious virtue. Regardless, I'm sure that everyone on board was looking forward to their arrival. As they flew down the west coast of Italy and out over the blue Mediterranean, the captain would undoubtedly have been gauging the ability of his co-pilot, who was not part of his normal crew. His regular co-pilot had asked to be replaced on this trip because his wife was about to give birth. The stand-in was offered the chance to land at their destination, RAF Luca a decision that would subsequently be described in the official report that followed as imprudent. RAF Luca was a wartime airfield built to accommodate the string bags, spitfires and hurricanes that would defend the brave Maltese people during the atrocious bombing onslaught that they received in the Second World War. Bravery so remarkable that King George presented the island as a whole with the George Cross to bear witness to the heroism and devotion of its people. The runways at Luca were limited by space, the island is small and overcrowded, and they were not designed for the generation of jet fighters and bombers that now use them. As a result, landings had to be flown accurately with touchdowns made on the numbers at the beginning of the runway or stopping might be a problem. The direction of the landing also made a difference as the Vulcan would be facing a downhill slope on the runway that would add to their stopping distance. Having said that, 
the airfield was regularly used by Phantoms, VC-10s, Nimrods and others. It just needed care and accuracy a little beyond the normal. It appears, however, that the captain didn't adequately brief his co-pilot on the problems of landing on short downhill runways, which can present a variety of unusual visual cues to someone not familiar with the issues. He had also decided that they wouldn't use their large drag chute on landing, adding to the pressure on the other pilot to ensure that the landing was accurate. The captain monitored the approach, but it seemed that his co-pilot was having difficulties. First high, he used air brakes, but then was late in applying power to check the increasing rate of descent. Realising that they were coming down way too fast, the captain took control, applied full power and pitched the aircraft up, but only a second or two before impact far too late to prevent the aircraft from landing heavily short of the runway. In the final moments of the approach, the left wing dropped as the Vulcan sank into the undershoot and the landing impact drove the main gear up into the wing before it detached and fell onto the runway. An aircraft spotter remembers that the Vulcan was lower than usual and he heard a deafening sound of metal scraping on concrete as the huge aircraft landed heavily, bounced, and then with wrecked undercarriage came back down onto the runway. After scraping along the concrete for some distance, the Vulcan climbed away and the tower controller advised the captain of the damage and that his aircraft was now on fire. He replied that he would attempt to belly land the aircraft and requested that the runway be covered in foam. He was never going to get the chance, though, the chance to land a second time. The fierce fire from the punctured wing was uncontrollable, and in addition, the damage prevented the crew from raising the gear. The captain managed to fly the crippled bomber around the circuit, but the fire took hold and was overwhelming the structure. Flaming debris was falling, and then, control lost, the vast aircraft descended into the ground, breaking up as it did so. In the last moments, the two pilots ejected, leaving their stricken colleagues in the rear of the cabin to their fate. All five were killed when the aircraft impacted the ground. The burning aircraft fell on the town of Zabar, an event that is literally burned into the memories of those who lived there. On impact, the remaining fuel tanks burst, sending a wave of flame across the small town covering more than a hundred houses. Miraculously, only one life was lost, although twenty others received injuries, some serious. The Board of Inquiry was highly critical of the captain's actions, which were deemed negligent, despite the fact that he had dealt with another serious problem very well only a few years previously. In that case, an engine disintegration severely damaged his aircraft at low level. He climbed away on three engines, but the damage progressed to a second engine, and with his aircraft systems failing, he successfully ordered his rear crew to abandon the aircraft. 
Once everyone was clear, including his co-pilot, he finally ejected from the crippled bomber. The escape provision for the rear crew of the Vulcan, indeed most of the British V-bombers, had been a matter of contention for many years. The provision of ejector seats for the pilots was accepted, but the lack of adequate escape facilities for the rear crew had been heavily criticised. The original concept was that the whole forward part of the fuselage containing the crew compartment of the Vulcan would, in the event of an emergency, be jettisoned, allowing all the crew to descend together under a massive parachute, in a similar manner to the system developed for the American F-111 bomber. However, Avro had been unable to come up with a suitable design to accommodate this, so the requirement was quietly dropped. This short-sighted approach was very quickly demonstrated back in 1956 when a grand world tour of the RAF's first Vulcan, X-Ray Alpha 897, ended in disaster at Heathrow Airport in London. With the air officer commanding number one group in the co-pilot seat, the Vulcan attempted to land in low cloud and fog, to be greeted by a large reception committee of press and dignitaries. One can only imagine the pressure on the captain to get this aircraft safely on the ground. Not equipped with an ILS, an instrument landing system, the crew were talked down using a ground-controlled approach, and when the controller advised them that they were going above the glide path, they overcorrected with disastrous results. Impacting in the undershoot, they destroyed their undercarriage and the Vulcan's control surfaces attached to the rear of the Delta Wing. Unable to maintain control of the aircraft, the captain and the AOC ejected, leaving their rear crew behind to die in the subsequent crash. For reasons that defy logic, the air traffic controller who conducted the talkdown was blamed for the disaster, despite claims that AOC One Group was ordered three times to divert away from Heathrow because of the bad weather. The full result of the inquiry was classified secret, and even when revealed after 50 years, apparently failed to adequately apportion blame. When Martin of Martin Baker, the renowned ejector seat company, heard of the deaths in this crash, he reportedly became incandescent with anger. When the escape capsule idea for the Vulcan had been abandoned, he had lobbied hard to have ejector seats for all crew members fitted. He had gone as far as developing rearward-facing ejector seats for the Valiant, and initially the RAF were supportive of his work, even supplying him with the nose section of a Vulcan to assist him. He designed an ingenious command eject system that could sequence all three rear occupants through a single escape hatch without risk of collision. The design included self-tightening straps, self-folding tables and canted seats so that the escape trajectory would be safe. A successful demonstration was performed 
but for reasons only known to the upper echelons of the RAF and the Air Ministry, his proposal was turned down, a decision that would condemn many aviators to their deaths, including pilots who remained with their doomed aircraft too long whilst trying to give time for their rear crewmen to escape. The system that was considered suitable might well have been designed by Heath Robinson. Once ordered to abandon the aircraft, the rear crew would have to swivel their seats towards the access door in the floor. The door was blown open by 3,000 pounds per square inch of air in jacks and the access ladder attached to the door jettisoned so that it became a smooth slide. Cushions in the back of the crew's seats would inflate to push the occupant out and towards the door so that they could slide down in turn. Attempting this with the nose gear down was problematic as it was directly in the way of a safe escape and crewmen were briefed to grab a door strut as they exited in an attempt to swing around it. Questions concerning the adequacy and inequality of the V-bomber's escape systems were even raised in Parliament when it was asked if it was morally right to continue to send up air crews in V-bombers, knowing full well that if the aircraft gets into difficulties at low level, the crew have next to no chance of bailing out. Does not the benefit of hindsight prove today how utterly wrong was the decision taken four years ago not to adapt the V-bombers with ejector seats? The answer was that apparently the most careful consideration and thought were given to the problem, but the final decision resulted in no action being taken. I believe that the reasons for this were a combination of cost and the time lost, both in withdrawing the aircraft from service and because of the work on adaption. The lords who discussed this went on to remark that between 1959 and 1964, a period not including the two tragic crashes I have mentioned, there were six accidents involving 24 personnel, 17 of whom were killed. Out of the 17, only two were pilots, and both it is believed, stayed with their aircraft in an attempt to save their crew. I personally have great pride in the Royal Air Force, but decisions that senior officers and those in government have made at times leave me completely at a loss. However, a lack of concern for a crew's well-being was not just limited to the Royal Air Force. And let me tell you about an aircraft that mainman Micah mentioned to me. The Douglas F-3D Sky Knight, later to be called the F-10 Sky Knight. Not an aircraft that I was familiar with. The Sky Knight was not intended to be a nimble dogfighter, but a carrier-borne missile-equipped night fighter, packing a powerful radar system with an extra crew member to operate it, a couple of cannons and the new Sparrow Mark I missile. 
It flew in both the Korean and Vietnam Wars, where it amassed a creditable number of night kills against MiG-15s, despite the limitations of those early missiles, whilst only losing a single sky night. In the Vietnam War, it was modified to serve as an electronic warfare aircraft, where its large interior proved suitable for carrying the equipment required. The Sky Knight was a very large, straight, mid-wing design with side-by-side seating for the crew and powered by a pair of rather unimpressive Westinghouse J-34 turbojets. Because of its unflattering looks, blunt, tubby, and with a low-slung pair of intakes, it was nicknamed Willie the Whale, or more unflatteringly by the US Marines, the Drut, a name that becomes obvious when read backwards. What was different about the Sky Knight was its escape system, one that I have discovered was also used in the Douglas A3 Sky Warrior, an escape tunnel. Despite having been built and first flown in 1948, less than a year before the Martin Baker Mark I ejector seat was first tested, Douglas used the Ruby cockpit to design its unorthodox escape system. Part of the decision was made because early ejection seats weren't considered by Douglas to be suitable for side-by-side ejections, and the other was a result of an attempt to save weight. The escape tunnel led down and aft from the cockpit, behind the seats and exiting from a spot on the underside between the engines. In the event that the crew had to bail out, they would first depressurize the cockpit and then pivot their seats towards each other. Whilst the pilot tried to keep control of the aircraft, the other crew member would get out of his seat, face aft and kick open the escape chute door, which was supposed to fall down the chute and away. Then, grasping a horizontal bar, he would swing into the chute feet first, and slide out of the belly of the aircraft, hopefully followed by the pilot. This was only really going to work if the aircraft was more or less straight and level, and not in some unusual attitude where gravity might not be cooperating. New arrivals to the Sky Knight would be required to practice this bailout drill on an aircraft jacked up for the purpose, and slide down onto a pile of mattresses. If the first crew member didn't get clear quickly, he would provide additional cushioning for the pilot who would stomp on him as he followed him out. Some confidence in the system was obtained in part from a series of live extractions by parachutists during tests before the Sky Knight entered service at speeds between 139 and 444 miles an hour. For the highest speed tests, the F3D could reach 530 miles an hour, a crash test dummy was used and instructed not to open the parachute until between 5 and 20 seconds after leaving the aircraft for deceleration purposes. This escape system was also used to deliver special forces behind enemy lines, and pilots recall dropping them in clandestine night operations. One marine pilot remembers performing one such mission and tells the story of tapping his radar on the head, whereupon he left like a shot. 
He praised them for undertaking such a mission, and although two drops ended up with broken bones, that was from the night landing in the jungle, not the jump from the sky night. Despite the ingenuity of this type of escape system, in the end, the almost universal adoption of ejector seats in combat aircraft came, I'm sure, as a relief to everyone. So, what do you think, Steph? You, uh, you up for the Sky Knight uh, ejection system <laughs> or shoot? Yeah. Up. Oh, Hold on one second. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, that's my audio. that would be a jumper dumper system par excellence. <laughs> I'd have thought. Crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, what Steph is trying to. Have we lost Steph? No, I couldn't. I was on the wrong screen to get my audio back, and I was practically trying to do that um, (laughs) as we came out of the plane tails there and had a little bit of a technical slash user failure in my ability to do that. Not a problem. Yeah. um, Yeah, it's a bit of a different system. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they make it sound like an escape tunnel out of a prisoner of war camp, don't they? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So, Which airplane was it, uh, Nick, that they had to uh, slide down something and grab onto one of the landing gear Nose gear struts. Well, that was, to, that was uh, the Vulcan. The Vulcan? Uh, oh, my. If they had the nose leg down, the nose leg came down right behind the um, That's not a the, good idea. the slide, the chute. Hmm. Uh, so if, if they slid down it, they were going to impale themselves on uh, getting tangled with the nose gear. Hmm. So they were supposed to try and grab one of those struts and swing themselves to one side as they went. Now, basically, if you tried to escape with the gear down, it was not impossible. Apart from the fact that you know a manual escape system uh, take just takes time, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter how quickly yeah. you do it. It's, you've got a the guys. I don't think the guys wore their parachutes all the time. I might be wrong. They might have uh, you know had them in the seats, but they might have had to buckle them on. I don't know. And then like, uh, oh, we have to abandon our aircraft here. Quick, get the parachute. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Whereas the, the pilots emergency. up the front, um, you know, had had a jet seat. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, um, fine and beaut. Um, but it, it was just one of those design design decisions that it defeats me because it was obviously somebody said, "Well, it's not nearly so important that the rear crew get out. As long as we get the pilots out, that'll be fine." Uh, Save the just, the important people here. Ones yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's unacceptable, and and um, uh-huh. very honorable of the two pilots that did die out of the seventeen. They, you said, I believe that they they suspect that they stayed with the jet just to try to save it, so that yeah. the save others lives. tried, tried yeah. to keep it airborne for sure. long enough to yeah. get everyone out. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, it, it, and those two crashes. Uh, particularly the first one, the uh, the one with AOC one group on board. Let me explain. Uh, the you know um, the Air Force was do- in those days and still is to a certain extent divided up into groups. So all the bombers were in one group. So this would have been the equivalent of Bomber Harris in the Second World War. The Air Officer commanding one group was the guy in charge of all the bombers in the Air Force and all the V bombers. Very important job. And this was. Pride of the fleet, this first Vulcan to do a world tour. It was a big event. 
and then all the press and uh, you know MPs, dignitaries were waiting for them at Heathrow. Uh, but uh, they had a talk-down break off of 300 feet, and they were in weather that was well worse than that. So, uh, you know, you could only imagine what, what pressure there was on the pilot uh, with the AOC probably insisting, I don't know if he did or not, but I suspect he might have been putting pressure on to get him on, into Heathrow so he could attend this big event. Event, yeah, sure. And, of course, they ended up killing everyone behind them. They survived, mm. destroyed the airplane, killed everyone behind them. Just appalling. That is. Mm. Yeah. A very sad. sad. A very sad moment in yeah. uh, Air Force history. All right. Oh, well, uh, I was just going to one final note. Mm -hmm. After the Luca accident, I'm pretty certain that they would they they put a ban on co-pilots from flying the Vulcan below ten thousand feet. Just not allowed. How are you going to How are you going to learn? Get the experience. Yeah. So the only captains only below ten thousand feet. Yeah. So I'm going really. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, wow. people do knee jerks. I, I'm sure it eventually changed back. But yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think Steph has to go now. Pretty much. Okay. Hey, Steph. If you uh, if yeah. you need to leave us, uh, please do. Yeah, it's probably about that time. Okay. Um, are you guys going to continue on a little bit? Yeah, longer? we may knock out one or two, two pieces of feedback, and then um, and yeah, you then got one. You got to get Nick some um, yeah uh, feedback on, but um, I might leave you guys to do that and okay. um, we'll see how things go for part two. I'm not sure. All right. That well, yeah, if you can join us for that, uh, whenever that happens, we're not sure yet. Uh, please uh, we'll feel free to. Yep. We'll let All you know. All right. We'll, we'll do. All right. All right. Thanks, Steph. So long. Good night. Cheers. All right. all. Catch you later, Cheers. Steph. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So now it's just the two old guys again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid so. Yeah. And it's just for a little bit, you know, don't, don't worry people. We're, we're just going to be uh, knocking out a couple of, uh, feedbacks here and then we'll uh call it quits for part uh, one of the two-parter and uh let's see i think um i, I want to do this um this is actually something that i was hoping that we could do with both uh nick and rick here at the same time uh and we were hoping it was going to be today because we keep putting this one off uh but it's it's not going to happen but we're going to sort of make it happen we're going to force this uh we're going to watch this video and then we're going to get Nick's reaction. And then uh, when, when I have Rick on, um, I'm going to get his reaction to the same, the same uh, footage that we're going to watch. Gonna do the little feedback music intro thing? Uh, the feedback music care, intro. You, oh, yeah. Okay. Know. Nah, I'm not going to do the feedback intro okay, music. Okay, that's fine. Add it okay, later. just, just pretend that we just did the feedback sound clip. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, and here we go. It is this one here. Let me open it up and share it with everybody. No need for all this noise here. Okay, we're watching the right wing of, uh, I believe, a 747. Jeez, that, that dinosaur's noisy, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And I can't, can't hardly hear myself think. Are you talking about that dinosaur that we see in the distance uh, below this? Uh, uh, what you no? see down there is a beautiful, sleek French lady. Ah, and what and what model is this one, Nick? This looks like a six hundred to me. A three forty A three forty six hundred with uh, Virgin yeah. Atlantic colors. Uh, yeah, looks nice, isn't it? 
Got the uh, chemtrail switch uh, on. Yeah, it looks absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it is. But it's kind of oh. the, the airplane that we're getting the camera viewpoint uh, is seems like it's pulling ahead of the of the uh, 340-600. You sure that's not an optical illusion? <laughs> well, it might be. Uh, this is by uh, from Hanover Spotter 2015, by the way, to give credit for this uh, for this video. And again, I don't know why I'm even having the audio from this video on because it's just a bunch of noise. <laughs> so I'm going to turn uh, it off. I noticed the title: Extreme <laughs> Close Up Air to Air. I'm going. No, no, it's not. not. Yeah, that's a ridiculous title. Sorry, <laughs> that is not. <laughs> that is just standard one thousand foot separation. I suspect. Yeah, I mean, it almost looked like about two thousand. I didn't look even close. Uh, yeah. One thousand foot have been. separation. Uh, so basically, what we're looking at was just uh, two airplanes, um, probably somewhere over the Atlantic, um, cruising along. And uh, the difference there is that the seven forty sevens cruise speed uh, uh, economical settings or cruise settings are a little bit higher than the cruise mock for the a340-600 and and well you might think that jeff but i actually took a look into this particular event okay uh (laughs) and i discovered that um the 747 uh, was uh, just trying to make up time oh. and burning fuel like it was going out of fashion. Oh. I mean, uh, 12 tons an hour, what a horrendous burn rate to be able to maintain that speed. Whereas the French lady down there is so much more economical. And anyway, they were actually on a transatlantic route and being held up by a Boeing 767 ahead of them that was only able to, to do max chat 0.78. So, you know, they just, they you know, over the Atlantic, you can't overtake, you're all going the same speed. So uh, there was a 76, really slow old, you know. Where are you getting really all this information? Thing. I think you're just making this stuff up. No, no, I, I did a lot of investigation. <laughs> really? It took oh, me okay. ages. Uh, <laughs> I... I don't. I don't think you're being honest with us here. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. I. I. I no, I I'm not sure. Take exception to that opinion. <laughs> okay. But, uh, I mean, I'm sure that was the case. I'm sure I'm that absolutely must be absolutely sure. Yeah, I'm sure that was it. Yeah, some old boat was holding here. up that sleek Airbus. <laughs> oh, uh, Nigel, your good yeah. friend over there, uh, he's uh, saying something. He's in- not my good friend anymore. <laughs> <laughs> BS. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's good. Uh, you know, you, uh, you, you. I think you went too far, Nick, because at first I was actually believing you, and then I thought, uh, wait a minute, enough. this fair can't enough. be. This can't be right. <laughs> but le- let me just assure you that okay. uh, at, at the, one of the reasons the Airbuses used to cruise at around 0.82 uh, was because uh, much above that you started incurring uh, critical drag rise because. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you get um, Mac waves started forming on the aircraft, the drag increases. 8.2 is so actually pretty it, good. That's pretty good uh, pace, I think. Oh, we could do 8.6, but uh, 8.2, wow. yeah, it was uh, our normal cruise. Um, uh, and at that, we were using about, in the 600, about nine tons an hour. Hmm. Um, the 747s were up over 12 tons an hour. Wow. 
So um, that's that's the difference. Uh, you know, yeah. if you brought your cruise speed back just a little, you could save all that fuel, and you were going green. There you go. Bump 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 yep. bottom. Going green. You, go. you haven't got that button ready then. <laughs> no, I didn't. I, I wasn't expecting that at all. So I'll add it in post. In post, yep. Yeah. <laughs> We're going green. Nobody See? seems to believe me. No, I, I think I find that very rude. We've got some very rude people. Your veracity they... level right now is at an all time low. Uh, well, Sorry to say. Or for you. Maybe number six, Jeff, because it's about Air Force. Stuff. Okay. Maybe you want to do that. Because uh, you guys are both. Sure. I think that would be a good one and a good way to end this thing. Um, let's see. Uh, we're going to skip to uh, item number six, Nick. And uh, this was sent in from Devin, Devin Moore, um, asking, well, he sent some audio feedback. So let, I'm not going to tell you what he is asking. He's going to ask it himself. Here we go. Hello, APG crew. My name is Devin, and I'm currently an F-35 avionics maintainer at Hill Air Force Base and currently TDY at Nellis for Operation Neptune. Quick question for Jeff and Nick. When I got to Hill in 2018, I noticed a large disconnect between the pilots and the maintainers. We never really interact unless we're launching, recovering, or doing a red ball. Now, over my three years in the Air Force, I've heard stories of pilots and crew chiefs, and even avionics technicians uh, were almost on a first-name basis with the pilots outside of work and uh, had a good bond between each other. Now, my question is, when you guys were in the Air Force, how was it like between the pilots and the maintainers, and what do you think is causing the disconnect and in classic fashion and in tradition for aviation of the Air Force, here's a cold one. Cheers, everybody. Have a good one. Ah, nice. Nice little effect at the end there. Ah, I love it. Yeah. yeah. I'm having a cold one. Thank you. Are you? I'm not, unfortunately. Um, so uh, you want to you wanna tackle this one first, Nick? The uh, relationship between... Uh, mechanics, engineers, uh, crew chiefs, whatever you want to call it, um, uh, in your experience in the military? Yeah, it is It is slightly difficult because um, all the pilots are commissioned officers, uh, all but the engineering officers who, who you know, were in charge of the very various engineering departments. They were the only engineering officers and everyone below that were uh, non-commissioned. Um, and certainly when I was in the Air Force, there was an element of a division. Um, you know, we uh, drank and ate uh, and lived in a completely separate building. Uh, the officers and the NCOs were in another uh, mess, and the airmen had their, their own um, bars and places. And it was considered the norm that you didn't really mix it partly because you know, those uh, the M and the engineers uh, might feel they want, had to be on their best behavior if there are a lot of officers around. Uh, if you um, got yourself too familiar, then when it came time to start uh, handing orders out because things needed to be done too sweet, then there was that 
barrier to overcome now because uh, you've been on first name name terms and now you're delivering orders, uh, which you don't want to have questioned necessarily because there may not be time. So there was a natural uh, rank, an order. Having said that, um, on the squadron, we used to get on very well indeed uh, and be much more um, friendly uh, with our own engineers, but you wouldn't mix in the same manner with engineers from other units. That wouldn't be appropriate. But uh, on your own unit, uh, with your own line mechanics and the guys fixing your airplane, it, we were very encouraged. Uh, my airplane was Foxtrot. Um, and, uh, you know, I was encouraged to find out where Foxtrot was, if it was being worked on. On my spare time, I'd go down and chat to the guys who were doing the work. Uh, I might even try and roll up my sleeves, not that I was qualified, but, you know, try and help them out, cleaning it and, you know, doing what I could, hand them tools or whatever, just basically, you know, uh, trying to break down some of those barriers because I think it was a great um, a, uh, a great way of bolstering morale so that everyone thought that we were all on the same side, fighting the same war, doing the same you know, similar jobs, and everyone's job was important, whether you were washing the airplane or flying it. Um, so I found at squadron level, we could do that. But outside that, at any other level, it, it didn't happen. Where there, there was very little mixing in the same way that um, the senior officers didn't mix with junior officers very much. You know, Friday night, the bar was different. You could go and give the station commander a good finger poke with you in his chest and and tell him that he was doing a lousy job. Uh, but, you know, come Monday morning, no, that was definitely That was a, you could get on. court-martialed for that. Or a- <laughs> exactly. But in the, in the officer's mess, in the bar on a Friday night, after a few beers, it was, it was generally considered fair game to go and poke your boss in the chest and, and tell him to, what was wrong with his squad <laughs> <laughs> and hope that he was so drunk. He wouldn't remember. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so you've always flew the same airplane. I mean, you had like an airplane assigned to you. No, no, but I had an airplane with my name on and mm-hmm. that was my airplane. But so you didn't it, always fly. It, that you way. flew whatever was on okay. the, on the board, I was, but I was wondering, it, about that. you kept an eye on your airplane and if it went in the hangar for something. Yeah. And a Fox shop was always, it was a bit of a hangar queen. You know, it was. We used to call it a Christmas tree, because that's one you know, which sits in the hangar and just rob bits off it for other airplanes, and uh, it never seems to get fixed. That's uh, sad. So it was. It was. It was a pity. And we didn't. I didn't have that experience at all. Um, as far as like you know, having I never had an airplane with my name on it. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, when I flew my first assignment flying one forty ones. Yeah, we had no contact whatsoever with uh, with mechanics, engineers, whatever you want to call them, crew chiefs. Uh, we did have um, on the on a regular crew in the cockpit though. We had uh, two, typically uh, the aircraft commander and the co-pilot. We we're officers, commissioned officers, and then um, generally speaking, the flight engineer slash scanner, and they were both um, non-commissioned officers. Um, and uh, they, and the reason why the there's a different name for each of them, they kind of like take turns. Like on one leg, the uh, one of them would be sitting at the engineer panel, 
and the other one would be the scanner that goes outside and for engine starts and that kind of thing does other things um and then the next one they just swap roles but uh same position and uh non-commissioned officers and then the load master or load masters depending on what kind of cargo we're hauling uh, were uh, enlisted um, airmen that uh, were not uh, non-commissioned officers at all and so you know had a couple different um, breakdowns of um, rank and that type of thing and obviously because we flew the trips together um, you know we worked with each other and I don't remember if we ever were on a first name basis I don't think so uh, but as you say, Nick, you know, the, the quarters where we stayed, you know, we, the officers went to the officers, um, quarters, uh, when we were out on trips and the, uh, non-commissioned officers and the airmen were in a different setup and, uh, at our bases, even when I was in, um, an instructor in pilot training, we had separate officers, um, clubs and separate non-commissioned officers clubs and other, other types of setups for the airmen. So it was definitely something that they kept everybody apart and the only person that i know of uh, that i can remember uh, because it's been such a long time that i actually was on a first name basis with who was a, a non-commissioned officer and we all know that the non-commissioned officers are the ones that actually run everything <laughs> and that was true yes. <laughs> in our uh, wing say i was a wing safety officer for the t-37 fleet and uh at columbus and the uh, guy that uh, basically ran the office uh, was a non-commissioned uh, i think it was a a chief master sergeant or a or a master sergeant maybe he wasn't a chief uh but it was way up there in the non-commissioned officer ranks and uh and we were on a first name basis because you know we worked day in and day out in the same office same space so that's it yeah that was my relationship yeah. and experience i mean we often had uh sort of casual nicknames for each other like a position uh, mm-hmm. they wouldn't call you sir all the time um you know you you get called the driver or whatever mm-hmm. um and um you know we would do the same but you didn't actually use first names um unless it was a social event and we used to have a lot of social events where we included the whole squadron so every rank came mm-hmm. but that was just the whole squadron together and after a few beers everyone was having fun but Outside of uniform, if I was down the golf course playing a game of golf with one of our engineers, um, an NCO or a, a you know an airman, you'd make them uh, salute then, you, wouldn't? Yeah. You? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, I'd put my hat on, especially. Um, yeah, no, they, then you, you'd be on first name terms, but mm-hmm. you, you always understood that when you went back to work, mm-hmm. things reverted um, because it was both embarrassing for him. And embarrassing for me if we let that slip. Um, it was just the way it was. I sus- Mind you, let's not forget, I came out of the Air Force in 93. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was a while ago. Now. Yeah, I came out in 88. And uh, I suspect that things are a little bit different now because I don't think they have separate commissioned officers uh, clubs and separate non-commissioned officers clubs anymore. I think that they're all one big thing and I don't know what they call it. Uh, so I'm wondering if that has changed the way that the, the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned officers interact. Um, so I, I suspect it probably has changed that change all that. So maybe somebody listening right now who is either presently in the uh, military or just recently left the military, perhaps you can send us some feedback and let us know what the 
relationship is. Good. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think I suspect it also is different depending on what type of airplane you're flying and the mission that you're flying, you know, uh, used to be in the old days, Mac and SAC and TAC, you know, were that was different cultures and all those different, um, and air training command ATC. Uh, now it's the way they put everything together and separate things is, is quite different than from what I remember. So. Yeah. Armando would be a good person to ask, but I think yeah. he's a bit busy right now, sadly. Yeah. Well, maybe Armando, if you're listening, uh, you want to, you know, send off a quick, uh, feedback, uh, we would appreciate it. So, yeah. With that, uh, Arnie asks what it's like in the civilian service. Oh. And uh, there it's obviously a lot more relaxed. I mean, uh, if you need to, uh, you know, got an engineer on board, you, there's a definite hierarchy because the engineer has, has the airplane when it's on the ground and he's fixing something. When he's handed over to me, it, it's mine. Uh, and he doesn't touch anything without being polite enough to say, Captain, do you mind if I uh, put the APU on? I want to check something. Uh, occasionally you get people who just walk in to the flight deck and start pushing buttons. And if it was my airplane and I was halfway through my checklist, I'd go, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> what do you think you know, you're doing? I've just set that up. Yeah. How am I supposed to know? I've got to start all over again now. Uh, you know, you have, have the decency just to say, can I do something and, and tell me what you're going to do so that I know if it's going to affect yeah. the safety of the airplane. So, yeah, we're on, we're, we're on a friendly basis, uh, as far as the mechanics, uh, at Acme and, uh, and the pilots and, uh, uh, mutual respect and all that kind of stuff. But uh, as Nick said, that there's a, a place and a time for the way you do it. The, the interesting thing I was just reminded of, uh, is that, uh, it seems like we pilots have all these rules and regulations as far as, like, you know, when you can start an APU and how much time you have to wait before you do this, or you can't do this on the ground, you know, and then the mechanic comes in and he just starts flipping switches and everything and doesn't have anybody clearing anything outside and thinking, what, what, what are you doing? He goes, oh, we don't have those rules. <laughs> we, just, <laughs> yes. we just do this stuff. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, uh, in, interesting though. Um, yeah. I mean, in Civvy Street, uh, there still is, uh, uh, has to be a, a hierarchy mm -hmm. because ultimately there's only one person who's going to carry the can. There's only one person whose opinion is will be final. Yeah. And whilst we encourage always to seek the advice and the assistance of everyone around mm -hmm. us, the ultimate decision comes down to one bloke, and yeah. it's Jeff. If you're and yeah, if you're yeah, <laughs> just just me for everything. Yeah, aviation everything related. Jeff. It's just yeah. Jeff. Same in the podcast. Yeah. Final decision. <laughs> exactly. Jeff. Right. I'm just an ogre, apparently. Um, scary ogre. Yeah. Um, shut up, Liz. I'll talk to you later. Um, no, you won't. Just kidding. Yeah. Docker pay. <laughs> um, all right. So I think that that is going to do it for today's oh i, I was just going to add one more thing before we end um the fact that uh, and just to kind of amplify or or uh, support what you just said nick is that when it comes to whether an airplane is going to fly or not um it's all down to the captain uh, the commander of the of the thing and and you know no matter what a mechanic says to try to convince me that the airplane is safe to fly and you know it's legal to fly and everything else i just calmly say well that may be, but I just don't feel that it's 
for me, a safe way to operate. So I'm not going to take the airplane until this is fixed or whatever. And, you know, the worst that can happen is that I leave the airplane and they find somebody, somebody else that will fly the airplane, which, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Usually when you finally put your foot down, they go, okay, this, this airplane is down. We're going to find another airplane for you. So, well, I know a great story about someone who's in the chat room who uh, did exactly that and got fired. Um, Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, that's so. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one day. But, okay. Uh, or perhaps he'll tell you himself. Yeah. Maybe day. he uh, can send. I think I know who you're talking about, and he can send us some uh, <laughs> feedback on that. But in the meantime, um, yeah, it is time for us to end part one. And uh, we are going to uh, stop right here. And thank you, everyone, for joining us for this part. And uh, stay tuned for part two coming up shortly. And the magic of podcasting. Look who just joined us. He is a world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. <laughs> I was calling me Nick. I almost I've been did. No, Miami Nick. Wait a minute. That's not right. <laughs> Oh, hey, everybody. Man. It's been a little while. Happy to be uh, back. Happy to see everybody um, sitting in uh, precisely. So, wow. Yes. Do you have like one of these little ukulele players and Hawaiian singers? I do. Just I travel? do. It's, it, it's sitting right over there. And uh, <laughs> what you can't see is I'm actually wearing a hula skirt. <laughs> oh, thank um, goodness. We can't see that. So. <laughs> just like the kilt. I see. It's, uh, I see the theme there. Exactly. Yeah. Just like the kilt. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, um, no, yeah, just uh, sitting out here. Got here uh, yesterday afternoon uh, once again, which is basically all I've been doing for the last um, um, month or so. Just uh, out and backs between uh, California and Hawaii. And uh, I'm not complaining. No. Oh, yeah. That's nice. It's good stuff. That's good. Uh, yeah. Good. Good duty. To, uh, to it have. is, it is, it is. Uh, you know, fl- um, uh, hour-wise, it's uh, it's um, it's you know, it's about uh, what about six hours block uh, west uh, bound and about uh, five-ish eastbound. So uh, huh. you know, every out and back you're putting it uh, about eleven to twelve hours. So uh, it's a good uh, good chunk of hours there. Yeah, good way to to amass time. Yeah, and. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. So uh, that's that's great. I'm glad you're enjoying your new gig out there, uh, being based in uh, Ontario, Ontario, uh, California, Riverside, whatever. Now, those are two different places, right? Do you fly out of both airports? Right. So two two uh, two different places, correct? Okay. Uh, both Ontario and uh, it's it's not actual. It's not Riverside Airport proper. It's uh, March, oh, uh, March Air Force Base or Air, Air, Air Reserve Base. I know you're you're very familiar with that. Uh, yeah, and there are a couple with that particular field. Yeah. And that place is really cool, actually, because um, um, so we, we we occupy the very south, uh, I guess southeast, the the, mo- the most southeast part of the airport, like mm-hmm. we're at the very bottom there, and it's a little you know uh, civilian ramp, um, and uh, you see a lot of uh, obviously uh, heavy um, military aircraft, KC one thirty fives, C five, C seventeens, and uh, we also see. Um, 
DC 10s and uh, 707s that belong to this um, company called uh, Omega. And mm. they are a, uh, a, a, I guess, a contractor for the military. And they, they, they provide do air, air uh, tankers as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do tankers. Yeah. I remember so, uh, every time you, you say Omega, I, I remember uh, Farnborough, it was either 2016 or 2018, one of those. Uh-huh. Uh, there was an Omega uh, DC-10, I think, tanker over there, uh, part yeah. of the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I don't know how many they have, but uh, it must have been the uh, must have been the one you saw because uh, it's always sitting there. And it's uh-huh. uh, I think it's a it's a DC-10. Uh, it's a forty. It's a it's dash forty because it's got uh, it's got the Pride and Whitney engines, and you can tell it's uh-huh. uh, it's it's Pride and Whitney because the engine number two. It's got a it's got a larger intake compared to the uh, dash thirty, which has a CF sixes. It's just a straight through. Oh. But uh, don't ask me how I know that. But um, okay, I won't. Yeah, it's a, it's a DC ten forty. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. I wouldn't know uh, just by looking at it. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not a uh, Wikipedia of uh, aviation information, as you are, of course. Um, yeah, we've missed that. Um, yeah, well, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, anything else? going on in no, your life well it's uh, so besides the besides the flying uh, i took uh, we took a little time off and uh kaya and i went over to uh, her parents place up in um up in the uh central coast um they live in the um uh san luis obispo area down there mm-hmm. on the coast it's really really pretty place right up That's there right. in wine country yeah and um so we took um um so her parents uh, drove from phoenix back to uh, where they live uh, and took our dogs well, along with their dogs. So they have uh, a German Shepherd and a uh, Belgian Malinois, and we have two German Shepherds. Um, so uh, when they drove back to uh, California and drove back home, they took the RV back with the dogs, well, all four dogs. And so uh, we were at home for a little while without our dogs. So we went, <laughs> we're like, I don't know, let's, let's just go, let's go visit the dogs. So we did, you know, picked up and went over, um, hung out with the dogs and the family there. It was a lot of fun, you know, four, four huge dogs it's a lot of fun and you know and we we love going on long long walks on the beach with the dogs and they really enjoy that stuff and now apparently um there's gonna be a new member to the family here we just uh, saw we just uh uh got a uh, a new a belgian malinois foster little puppy uh, only five months old um so we're uh, her name is lucy the cutest little dog ever oh. so uh oh man i'm just i'm in big trouble i'm i'm, I'm a sucker for uh for belgian malinois i love those dogs I, so, um, I'm not familiar with that, um, from, from that breed. Not, yeah. It's your, it's your, um, whenever you see police dogs of working dogs, police dogs, military dogs, that they're, they're either, uh, Bel- uh, Belgian Malinois or, or German shepherds. If, and if you see a dog that's not a German shepherd is very likely a Belgian Malinois. Oh, okay. They look um, very similar. They're very high energy, very, um, uh, they're just wound up and, uh, they're just working dogs. And the problem is, is that a lot of people tend to get these dogs as puppies and uh, pretend to, um, you know, want to keep them as pets. And these are not dogs for, for people that don't know how to handle these dogs. You have oh, to be, you have to have a, a certain level of experience. Yeah. So uh, they end up, uh, you know, giving them or, or uh, to, to, to shelters. And then the shelters are overwhelmed with these kinds of dogs. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that they have to, they, they look at, uh, for, for, you know, for, for families and people that, that are, are foster parents. And then, so we take them in, we kind of train them a little bit and then we, uh, either adopt them, which is what I want to do with Lucy mm-hmm. or find them a family and send them on their way. So, um, cool. so that's kind of what we do. 
Yeah. That's nice of you guys to do that. Hey, yeah. you talked about the San Luis Obispo. I, I was thinking to myself, I think there's some kind of a really eclectic kind of hotel uh, there called, and I was just doing a little search while you were talking the about Madonna the Madonna Inn? Madonna Inn, yes. Yeah. Have you been there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. They have a uh, good chocolate cake there. Oh. <laughs> I, I guess really they have like, each room is like a different... Uh, uh-huh. It's like, like different themed rooms. Yeah. I've, I've never stayed there, um, but uh, it's 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 famous for for that. It's got yeah. uh, um, different uh, different. I mean, I'm not familiar with the with the themes, but uh, right. I've, I've heard I've heard that uh, it's quite the interesting place. Very colorful from these photos I'm looking at here. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> good. My mind hasn't completely failed me. Uh, I. I, I thought, what is the name of that? I, I didn't remember the name. I had to do a eclectic hotel in San Luis Obispo. And then, boom, Madonna Inn. I went, yep, that's uh, it. Right away. Sweet. <laughs> anyway, uh, yep, got to love the Google. All right. Um, so you had a nice little time away from home and time to relax and visit family. That's great. That's always good. Yeah, it was It was nice. little, you know, just, just uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's good to kind of, um, you know, um, take a couple steps back from 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 your day job even though i mean i, I love aviation and mm-hmm. i mean I, I love what i do for a living like for me it's not work but uh it's always good to kind of take a step back and decompress a little mm-hmm. bit and kind of turn that off for a little while and yeah. you know and and focus on family and, and and the important things in life and then uh and then you come right back and you're recharging ready to go you know yeah absolutely very good. Well, hey, we ended up covering all of the news items one of them and i don't know if you Got a chance to uh, read about this or see the videos, Rick? The um, mm-hmm. midair collision at uh, Centennial uh, Field, and uh, oh yeah, yeah. What would you think about that? We, <laughs> oh, yeah. we we spent a good amount of time on it uh, on part Oof. one. Um, but what, what's your take on that thing? Well, first and foremost, the pilot of the uh, Metroliner will never have to buy a beer for himself <laughs> ever again. <laughs> no kidding. What a, um, what an amazing airplane! <laughs> Talking about a beefy, I, t- airplane. I tell you, that oh, is goodness. just jeez. I uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, could have been it could have been bad. Yeah, um, I think I, I heard uh, I heard the recordings, uh, the ATC recordings. Uh, it's interesting how he 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 didn't know that he'd been hit. I thought he thought I it know. was an engine failure. He'd, <laughs> he'd had an engine failure. Um. But it was it was handled beautifully. I really yeah. I really do think it was uh, you know you did a fantastic job. Everybody was saying how calm, cool, and collected he sounded, and I'm thinking yeah because he only thought it was a right engine failure. And you know that's still a that's a big event. You know you only have two, and exactly. But, but uh, I think if if he had known that he had been involved in a mid air collision and a big chunk of his airplane was missing. He may have sounded a little bit differently on the radio. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now I. Um, in flight at, at cruise altitude it would have been a little bit different because obviously it would he would have had to deal with an explosive decompression and um and and the fact that that air would have escaped the fuselage as, as, as you know quickly because it's, it's an explosive decompression hence hence the word explosive uh, it would have very likely have uh, compromised the structural um, integrity of the fuselage a lot more uh, obviously there was he was just about to coming in coming in coming to land and so um uh, plane was you know depressurized no delta b none of that stuff so uh uh, from that point of view, the the, uh, the fuselage held uh, quite nicely. But then again, I mean, it's no it's no minor event, uh, and I think he handled it beautifully. Um, I'm I'm happy for the other guy as well. I mean, the fact that he had that uh, that parachute 
Um, and he was able to walk away and uh, get to fly another day. Um, it's going to be interesting to see uh, uh, what happens from uh, you know, because I'm sure there's 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 an inve- there's going to be an investigation and um, there's a lot there's liability and insurance and all that stuff. It's going to it's going to be interesting to see how how the whole thing shakes out. But um, I tell you, I mean, every time I look, I've, I've I have nothing against um, GA or anything like because we all started in GA. But um, you start, and, and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm talking from, from what I've experienced in the, the last year or so flying out of Southern California, um, uh, where you have a high concentration of GA you know, aircraft around the airports where you fly in and out of all. I mean, I, I had, a, I had a, uh, an RA event, a resolution advisory event a, a month or so ago, uh, taken off out of, um, uh, I think it was Riverside. Uh, and basically... The um, you have a, a a device on 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 aircraft. And it's called a transponder, right? So they're they're constantly talking to each other, and so um, each airplane is in in a in a bubble of certain dimensions, right? And 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 when those bubbles kind of touch, um, the transponder of of one airplane talks to the transponder in the other airplane, and they figure out how to resolve that conflict, telling one airplane to either climb or descend, and then the other airplane to do the same. Right, so it only works vertically. There's no there's no um, lateral um, escape maneuvers. Can you, if you're looking out the it's, window, can you see the bubble? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the humidity's got to be just right. Okay. <laughs> 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 and so what you're supposed to do is you're just supposed to, you know, obviously try to look out the window and, and, and see if you can find the guy. But the, 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 the way to, to fly this particular maneuver is you disconnect autopilot, disconnect out throttle and just basically follow the commands from the resolution advisory. So you're, you're going to have, um, there's different, different, uh, uh, iterations of the system. Um, but, but the idea basically is to fly away from the red and into the green, you know? So, and, um, that should keep you, it will keep you, um, away and safe from the other traffic until the, uh, the conflict is resolved. And then you're able to go back to your cleared, uh, altitude or, or, you know, or whatever it is. But then again, it's, it's, that's what I'm talking about. The, the, the high level of traffic in Southern California is something that it's, 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 it's a little, you know, it's, it's it's worrying sometimes because mm-hmm. I'm like, well, whenever I go flying in the morning, I'm like, oh, it's sunny and it's a Sunday. Um, yeah, I have to, you know, have my head on a swivel out there. But it's like it's even so, yeah, it's worse on the weekends. But even during the week, it's pretty crazy with GA traffic out there. Oh yeah, well, as oh, opposed absolutely. to most of the places that I fly here in the eastern U.S. Um, unless we're talking about Florida, there are some places that mm-hmm. the traffic's all kind of always crazy. Nothing quite like Southern California, but most of the time, most of the places we fly, the only time you really have to have your head on the swivel for GA traffic is uh, on the weekend or some kind of. A and holiday. it's interesting the, all oh, right, precisely. And it's interesting down here in Southern California because, and one of the, one of the things that kind of works against you is the fact that a lot of these places. In, in, in Southern California are um, surrounded by high, high terrain. So your departure procedures have certain altitudes that you have to meet mm-hmm. and certain climb gradients that you have to comply with, um, which means that the airplane has to have a certain climb rate to make that restriction. Mm-hmm. Problem is, is that you have, if you have another airplane uh, flying over, over top of you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, 
the other airplane's transponder only interprets, uh, it can only read or, or uh, I guess, detect your climb rate. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it, uh, it, uh, it thinks that at that climb rate, you're going you know, to create a conflict between the two. So all of a sudden, you find yourself having to fly an escape maneuver um, because your climb rate is too high, but it needs to be that high for you to make that level of restriction. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's a handful. It really is a handful. That's why um, I'm a big proponent of um, uh, manual flying, but and not, not, in, not in Southern California. When you're taking off, you want to put the autopilot on and you want to have your, you know, you just, you're, you're, you want to be, you're, you want to have big picture type stuff yeah. going on. Um, and um, that's, that's a good mitigation technique that. to trap errors. Yeah. How did I do with all the terms, <laughs> all the buzzwords? Um, okay, excellent. Um, did you know, by the way, that uh, the guy that was following the Cirrus in that particular pattern, uh, Cessna 251, uh, it was his first solo? I saw that. <laughs> and that's yeah. amazing. And did you see, did you see the, uh, the <laughs> so... Uh, when they do the 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 the, the solo thing, and then mm-hmm. they cut the back of the T-shirt, and right. then they they do the the, the drawing and all that, he, he drew the uh, he drew the midair <laughs> traffic to follow, and then has the airplane with the parachute. That's funny. Anyway, uh, so he'll he'll never well you you never most of us never forget our first solo. I may have, uh, but uh, he'll definitely not forget his. <laughs> no, uh, no, you can't forget that. I can't even remember what my name is. So anyway. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So excellent. Well, so glad to have you on part two, Rick and Miami, Rick, Miami, Rick, not Nick. Okay. Uh, I think I have that all sorted out in my brain. And, uh, now we'll head over to, uh, some feedback and I, I don't think we even played this feedback theme in the last show. So we're going to do it right now. Captain. Incoming message. Even though I didn't play the theme in the part one, uh, we did cover um, a couple of items of feedback. And one of those we're going to cover again. And so this is a video that was sent in from who? Liz? Uh, let's see. Uh, stand by. Yeah, Sorry, I got here. it. Peter. Thank you. Yeah, oh, Peter. Rick knows. Uh, Peter sent this in, and it's a video, and it uh, involves two airplanes, uh, one of which uh, Miami Rick is very familiar with, and the other, uh, Captain Nick, uh, very familiar with. And um, so, without further ado, let me just play this video. No need to have all that racket going on. We're looking at the right wing again of a 747. And we're looking out the window, down, a little bit lower. And, oh, all of a sudden there's an airplane in Virgin Atlantic livery. Um, Flying backwards, apparently. Flying backwards. Uh, And the uh, chemtrail uh, switches on all four engines are going strong. And uh, so um, the 747 appears to be passing this thing like it's not even moving. I guess you could say, yeah, sort of. It's a pretty airplane, though. You have to say that A three forty six hundred. It is. I like the uh, beautiful jet. I like the big engines. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so Nick had a few um, choice words to say about this whole thing. Uh, I'm sure he did. Uh, so what, sure what, what do you? Th- what would you say about this? Get out the way. Get out the way, <laughs> you slowpoke. 
are you doing out there? Come on, find a real jet to fly. Uh, yeah, really. Turn your blinker off. <laughs> oh, God. That's that is that's pretty. That's harsh. That's harsh. <laughs> Nick is not going to appreciate that one, uh, but it was funny. So thank you for that. Um, he he oh, made man. up some actually a, a story that uh, he said he had done some research about this and that and about the 747 and the reason why it was flying so fast and the reason the mm. A340 was flying so slow was because of some 767 ahead. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. As soon as he said the 767 traffic ahead and they had to slow down, I'm thinking, okay, I don't think I don't think that any of that is true. I think you're making that up. You know, he, he admitted that he was making it all up. He had, he knew nothing about that. <laughs> so. Anyway, just thought it, I think that no, Peter, it looked like, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, I, I think that Peter uh, just thought that it would be kind of fun to uh, discuss this uh, video uh, with both of you on. And, and unfortunately, we can never get both of you on at the same time anymore. So uh, there you go. Geez. Go ahead. Well, but it's, I was going to say it's, 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 um, so that looks obviously like it's an Atlantic crossing and, um, um, it's, I mean, you, you can't really, you know, run much of a race once you are in the in the North Atlantic track system because you you have been uh, cleared to do the crossing at a specific speed. Um, there is, however, a little bit of a race to get to the coast out point because um, um, if you get there first, or if you know if, if you if you're able to get there first, um, you have choice of um, of flight levels. Um, and so that's what we used to do. I remember, um, um, whenever I was going to do flight, uh, across the Atlantic going to, uh, towards, uh, to Europe, um, I'd take off. And as soon as we got across, uh, 10,000 feet and go straight to 350 knots indicated. And, uh, on the transition to mock, we'd go to uh, 0.86 or 0.87, uh, provided we had the fuel for it. And, you know, a lot of times we, um, when when we knew it was it was busy time of day, we would plan for that. So uh, you know, if you get to 350 knots, and no other airplane um, that I know of can get to 350 so quickly. And then obviously, once you get to uh, the um, you know the mid 20s, mid to high 20s, you transition to mock speed. You know, 0.87 mock, 87 percent of the speed of sound, and I you know nobody can touch that. So you'll you know more often than not get to your coast out first, and then you would request whatever your um, your uh, um, uh, cruise uh, speed for the crossing walls, which for the seven four is you know, between eight four and eight five. Um, uh, the, I mean, all jokes aside, I do believe the, and you can tell, you can tell just by the, just by the wing sweep angle. So the seven forty seven has got thirty seven point five degrees of sweep, and the 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 reason why that's important is because the higher the sweep angle is, the higher your critical Mach number is, and critical Mach number is the 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 Mach number at which you begin to get. Uh, local supersonic flow over the wind uh, over the wing and so uh, if you compare wing sweep angles to, um, you know the 340 and the 747 obviously you can tell that the 747 does fly does fly faster uh, because you know just aerodynamically it's, it's, it's designed to fly faster uh, but again once you get to the coast out point you are at set speed because you have to um, get to your next reporting point uh, within three minutes of your um, estimated time of arrival over that point. If not, you need to uh, you know, revise your uh, your ETA to the next point. But not only that, remember that uh, not so much now because now we have uh, you know uh, uh, ADSC uh, and uh, CPDLC and all these systems. But back in the day, 
obviously uh, Atlantic and um, that, that kind of that those types of flights were obviously outside of radar coverage. So the only way ATC had of knowing that um, you had a proper separation between aircraft was by uh, these uh, uh, time intervals between uh, reporting position to position. And so uh, that's the idea behind that now. Um, so yeah, once, once you start coasting out, you're a set, at a set speed. Yep. I, I can kind of envision um, a time, probably not in the too far future, that with the satellite satellite coverage and technology that we have, that we're going to get to a point where it's almost going to be like flying out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. is going to be just like flying over a continent and radar coverage oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Or not radar, absolutely radar-like mean, coverage. Yeah, and, and even so, uh, as of January the 20th of last year, um, CPDLC, which is Controller Pilot Direct Link Communications, which is um, a, 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 a permanent, a constant communication link between pilot and controller, is now required equipment to cross the Atlantic between 290 and 410, which is basically RVSM airspace, so reduced vertical separation minimum airspace. Um, and, and the beauty of that is that uh, long gone are the days of having to make these position reports by um, uh, HF radio. And uh, I'm still having to do some of that stuff here on the 7-6, flying the uh, routes out here to Hawaii because, you know, not all our airplanes are CPDLC equipped. And so the, the cool thing about that is when you're flying an airplane, a uh, CPDLC airplane, you are going to contact the, if you're going across the Atlantic uh, um, eastbound, you're going to contact uh, Gander. Uh, you're going to tell them uh, via HF or no, not really HF, uh, not not at first. You contact them via VHF. You give them your estimate to the coast at point. Uh, you tell them that you're CPDLC. So, but the way you log on to CPDLC is via um, depending on the airplane. But there's 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 a code, a four letter code that you put in there, and then you log in. You wait for the uh, system to tell you that you are in fact uh, logged in. And the four and letter the code controller F A R T. <laughs> exactly for everyone <laughs> oh, for I every, for every center. i mean some people listen to us. yeah we, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to uh, edit that out <laughs> okay <laughs> so and so and then once you are in contact with cpdlc you no longer have to make any position reports along the route oh, with nice. that particular control center nice. so um that's it so you just give them you just give them the coast that point the eta to that then they're going to put you on to uh they're going to give you the hf frequency you contact them on HF, and they do what's called a cell call check. Um, every airplane has a four-letter a four letter code now. Um, and it's kind of like the a... The, yeah, it's the same code. <laughs> and it's basically like the phone number to the airplane, to your particular airplane. And so ATC contacts you on that, and then this, this alarm goes off, just basically letting you know that ATC is contacting you. So you make sure that link is working fine. And then from that point on, you never talk to ATC again. And that's great, you know? So, right, um, like who wants to talk to those guys? Like those guys at <laughs> opposing bases or whatever. <laughs> I haul boxes oh. says uh, to the seven forty seven pilots here. Do you honk as you overtake other traffic? <laughs> I, I actually, you know what? Funny, I, I actually used to do that, and you can do that on airplanes. So that we do have we do have a horn on airplanes, believe it or not. And I'm serious. Um, we have a little button mm-hmm. on the depending on the airplane, ours and Boeing's on the overhead panel. Where you call the uh, the the engineer, or the mechanic, mechanic call it says on ours. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. So you but just you know just hit that, and that's that's the, the problem. Is the airplanes uh, the other airplane probably can't hear it? I'm thinking. 
Well, you know, that's, um, although it, uh, that doesn't keep, <laughs> that doesn't keep the other airplane as they watch you speeding by to go like that, you know, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, oh, I, for those who are listening, listening to audio only, I was making that gesture that you make when you go back past a 18 wheeler or a lorry yeah. or whatever on the road, you know, like you're pulling down on the, on the horn when you go past lorry. Yeah. Lori, Lori, who? <laughs> anyway, so good stuff. Hey, uh, anything right. else uh, to wrap that one up, or are you ready to move on? No, to no, next? no. It's just a just really, really cool video. That's All cool. right, just, let's do this. Let's do it. Uh, five. Wayne writes in. Um, Love your show for all the interesting discussions and great entertainment. I'm a critical care physician working with advanced life support technology to help people with serious illnesses like COVID infection recovery. Intensive care medicine has learned a lot from aviation, including the use of checklists, simulation, and crew resource management, renamed the Highly Reliable Organization. Huh? Renamed the Highly Reliable Organization. Okay, really? They call crew resource management now Highly Reliable Organization? Okay. I often find something useful to take away from your shows to my work. For that reason, it pains me to write in negative feedback. But I think by dipping below your 50% accuracy, okay, Liz, throw it up there. In the case of the Qantas first officer, you may have caused your listeners some harm. Uh, We don't want to cause our listeners harm here. Nope. Um, None of us know the whole story about the Qantas first officer suing her airline. That's true. For PTSD after an engine failure. It may well turn out to be completely frivolous. However, you all jumped rather mercilessly on the idea that for her to develop PTSD, she must be mentally weak and not cut out to fly. And I still stand by that. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, me too. (laughs) That that line of thinking is an unfortunate and sad false narrative. Every one of us carries risk of developing PTSD or abnormal stress response to unexpected events in life and work, no matter our level of training or mental toughness. Our ability to move on from stressful events really depends on the level of support we receive. What if it turns out that the captain on uh, on the flight belittled her for his mistake or poor handling of the engine failure? What if she went to her company asking for counseling or extra simulation training to help her move on constructively, and they just told her to suck it up? What if the airline did send the pilots up in the plane knowing there was some shoddy maintenance on the engine? I really highly doubt that. All of these factors would predispose her to having long-lasting difficulty getting back to work in a productive way. Uh, this appears to be one area where the aviators can learn from medicine. We have made great strides in moving past these antiquated notions of mental toughness and accepting that we all need help and support from time to time to remain productive in stressful working environments. I feel very fortunate that my hospital system has a confidential, voluntary, peer-to-peer counseling program to help us sort through feelings after stressful events. I would hate for one of your listeners struggling with these issues to feel like they are weak when in reality, they're just human. I'll get off my soapbox, he says, and carry on with the great show. Wayne. Wayne, thank you very much for your uh, for your feedback regarding that. Now, I'm not sure, and I do remember when we first talked about this on episode 465, um, we did get some... Uh, really good uh, feedback. Uh, audio was it? Audio feedback? I think it was. Liz it was, yes, was? It was yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, from T yep. Kettle, fifteen. Fifteen. 
uh, on show number 467. He was uh, telling us about uh, the CIRP, the SERP program, Critical Incident Response Programs, sometimes called other things at other airlines. Um, and it's a, it's set up specifically to deal with these kind of issues and support uh, someone who may uh, have, be having issues with PTSD or whatever um, after after a traumatic event, and uh, and we and so we took that in stride and thought, yeah, Mel, maybe we didn't, maybe we just kind of jumped to conclusion and and uh, we're a little harsh with our original assessment of the uh, Qantas first officer, but um, anyway, so we just to kind of you know maybe you haven't made it to that episode yet. I know it takes quite an investment in time to listen to an entire show but uh, we did we did talk about that and we were very uh thankful uh for tea kettle 15 to take the time to to do that so and we appreciate the fact that you took the time to uh write this very well crafted uh piece of feedback so um yeah now we've uh we've ha- added a little bit more i guess to our that understanding works. of this um of this uh, event but uh, I would really like to find out, you know, how that thing progresses, the uh, lawsuit and everything else and what the outcome is. And hopefully, you know, nothing but great wishes for the first officer in this uh, particular event. Rick, do you have anything to add? Uh, well, no, it's just um, just going back through here and seeing that uh, he was saying, well, what if it turns out the captain on the flight belittled her for a mistake or poor handling of the engine failure? Well, Let's talk about let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have an, an engine failure in real life, uh, you have no time to bleed little anybody. Um, you are in a high stress, high workload type situation where your training kicks in, uh, and uh, you rely heavily on your colleague, your partner, to sort out the procedure. And uh, to make sure that the outcome is a good one, and so um, I don't, I don't think that. Uh, obviously, I wasn't there. I don't, as, as, as he said, I don't. You know, we don't know the full mm-hmm. story, but I, I doubt that that's what happened. Yeah, because I think that um, I, I could be wrong about this, but my impression was that the this first officer wasn't actually the pilot flying; it was pilot monitoring. So I don't know why um, a captain would belittle her for anything that exactly. any of her actions. And, and that was, that was the next thing, the very next thing I was going to touch on right now, when you have an issue like this and the FO is flying, once the situation stabilized, you do a positive transfer of controls. Um, and the, and it really depends, but, uh, the, the captain usually will be the one that, that, that handles the, um, uh, most of the most of the most of the most of the flying once the situation is uh, stabilized and the captain will do the landing and all that stuff. So, uh, um, that's 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 a good point that you brought up there, Jeff. And then she says he says here that what if she went to the company asking for a counseling or extra simulation training? Why 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 would the company say no? Yeah, I mean it's uh, I mean uh, the, the company wants to make sure that the pilot is comfortable, feels comfortable as particularly in this type of situation. And then again, depending on the airline, you go through recurrent training every either six months or nine months or every year. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's never a lack of training. Right. Um, uh, so uh, I don't, I don't, also, I don't think that, uh, that, that may be an issue here. 
Yeah, it kind of, I think that for most of us, it kind of smacked us, Wayne, of uh, someone who heard of this recent United um, Airlines flight leaving out of Denver, you know, the the flight from hell and, you know, people thinking that they were going to die and everything else because the engine kind of exploded or the fan section exploded and the cowling came off. The right engine did not come off, by the way. It was still there. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. It just seemed like the timing of it um, was a little odd because this had happened several years back and and it, i don't know to me it kind of almost smacked like somebody hmm, maybe i should uh, look into talking to a lawyer to see if i have any kind of case here and i might be able to get some money out of it or whatever of course again that's a very very skeptical kind of attitude to have but that was just the my initial impression and and unfortunately yeah, and that and kind I, of I, I carried over yeah. yeah so you know we we wish that first officer all the best and uh, and i'm glad that People are making um, making all, all of us aware of these programs that exist to uh, have people help you through uh, traumatic situations. Absolutely. So, thank you, Wayne. Um, oh, by the way, he said he's unsubscribing and he's never going to utter the word airline pilot guy ever again. And it's like, no, he didn't <laughs> say that at all. He said he is still enjoying the show. Grace so thank guys. You. And- <laughs> yeah. Gray, gray skies, uh, zero, zero viz, and headwinds. And wind shear. <laughs> and wind shear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. I'm uh, working a segue for you here. <laughs> well, good segue. Thank you, Rick. You're right on it. And speaking of a traumatic situation, wow. <laughs> this, now, uh, I don't know about you, uh, but I have a, scent, uh, a feeling that you kind of sensed the same thing I did when you heard uh, this audio and the the tone of the voice of this pilot and and uh, I know Rick, you and I have been there before <laughs> a few times, and uh, yeah, it just uh, makes the the hair on the back of my neck just like stand straight up, and I get goosebumps just listening to it. Not a good, not good goosebumps, bad goosebumps. And uh, so this was sent in by Dispatch Greg. Um, this is an audio file of an event that took place in Dallas, Fort Worth at the end of April of this year. I uh, thought I would pass it along for feedback and discussion. Great job to the flight crew and ATC for handling this stressful situation. Have any of you ever been in this type of situation? Yes. Uh, whereas you were on the approach and had, um, moderate to extreme precipitation falling and wind shear. Uh, I can hear the theme song. You can always go around in the background, uh, for time's sake. Uh, he edited the audio to remove the gaps. Thank you, uh, Greg, for doing that. That's that's always very helpful. He says, talk soon. And he says, P.S., are any of you going to Osh this year, Oshkosh? I might. I have I have the time off. I'm not sure yet if I'm going to be going or not. I'm not sure about Rick, if he has uh, any inkling about whether he wants to head up there for any of that uh, time frame. I would love to. End of July. Been, uh, what, it's been, it's been six six years. Has it been? Oh, okay. uh, yeah, because you didn't. Uh, unfortunately, you weren't able to join us uh, back in 2019. Um, we had a great yeah, time. I was in the other side of the world somewhere. Yeah, in some seedy hotel in southern Africa, perhaps having so much but, fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, so this is from, uh, as I said, Dispatch Greg, and uh, let's listen to this uh, audio feedback. It'll put you to sleep. Our EPS 754 Heavy, we're in the ILS to 36 left. EPS 754 Heavy, continue for runway 36 left. Continue, EPS 754 Heavy. 
CPS M54, heavy runway 36 left, turn land, wind 2707, just use caution. Uh, the approach sites for 36 left are not operational. Okay, copy that. Uh, we're clear to land on 36 left, UPS M54 heavy. And UPS M54 heavy, wind check 2708, you can roll all the way down to Taxway Zulu if you like. Alright, no, copy that, thank you. Attention aircraft, low level wind shear alert, runway 31 left departure in, wind shear alert 15 not lost at the runway, wind 24013, airfield wind 27010. UPS going around. UPS 754 heavy, roger, turn left heading 340, climb maintain 3000, stay with me when able. 340, 3000, UPS 754 heavy. Roger, turn that wind shear. UPS 754 heavy, I'm sorry, say that again, sir. Flying straight ahead, wind shear. You can 74 have no problem. Just let me know when you're out of it. You continue and uh, you do what you need to do. We need higher. We need higher. UPS 74 heavy. Can you uh, go ahead and uh, do that turn? Or if you can't, just let me know. Ne uh, negative. Roger that. Let me know when you're out of it. We need a left turn now. Turn left now, UPS 74 heavy. What heading do you need? 180. 180. Uh, left turn heading 180. Is that correct? Affirmative. Roger. We need higher. We're climbing. We need higher. Okay. How high do you need to go? 8,000. 8,000. Show it. UPS M54. You can just stay with me. 180 in the heading. 8,000 in the altitude. Let me know when you're out of it. All right. 180 heading and 8,000. Uh, we're out of the wind shear now, but it's rough as hell. No problem. Just let me know when you're able to change frequency. Stay with me for now. Roger with you. And UPS M54. Uh, just west of you and south of you. I got some extreme precepts, and you're about to go into it right now. Uh, well, actually, just uh, to the east of it right now. All right, copy. And UPS M54, can you do the frequency change now? Yeah. Okay, that's going to be 13597. 13597. 13597. We need a left 120. Say again the frequency. 13597. I'll let them know your uh, heading request. Thank you. All right. Just another nice, easy, fun day uh, flying around Dallas-Fort Worth <laughs> International Airport at night, dark, and full of thunderstorms. Oh, yes. I tell you, those uh, those Texas storms, man. Um, the um, interesting thing about the weather there is that sometimes you will get a wall, a solid wall from northwest to southeast. And there's just no way to get around it. You know, and a lot of times um, you'll, um, particularly during the daytime, uh, they, they grow very, very fast because of the heat. And so uh, you f it's, it's very easy to find yourself, you know, with, with the walls literally closing in around you. And, yeah, uh, out of options, and so uh, you just gotta hope that you're picking the softest spot of this <laughs> severe weather. <laughs> oh yeah, hang on for dear life. I mean, absolutely. It certainly sounded like that was what happening. What was happening? It was out of breath. I could kind of sense, and it was hard for him to even make these uh, transmissions on the radio. Um, and uh, I think the controller did a great job of basically, you know, letting him do whatever he needed to do, and. Uh, Kind of, he missed the call that you said he needed higher, but uh, eventually got that message through. And, uh, you know, and basically it wasn't, it, it was more of a, 
uh, a formality because I don't think they <laughs> had any control over that jet uh, yeah. as far as this altitude. Yeah. It was just like, we're climbing and we're in this wind shear and now we're trying. And, uh, and Rick will agree with me. And, uh, you know, you, you experience this in the simulator and then fortunately, or hopefully you won't have to experience this in real life. Uh, but, uh, you know, getting through a wind shear escape maneuver is tough, but the tougher part by a factor of five, at least is recovering from the recovery. Uh, because all of a sudden oh, yeah. the airplane just starts acting like it's a rocket and you know your speed's going up and you're climbing like a bat out of hell and you know you're pulling the power back and you're trying to get the nose down and trying to recover the airplane uh, from that recovery maneuver and sometimes that's I, I think it's that's the most difficult part of that maneuver yeah and not only that but you are you are particularly this airplane you know you're you're configured for landing you have landing flaps you have uh you know and 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 those have a certain uh a uh, a, a max uh, speed that you can fly with that particular configuration not only that but um as part of a wind shear escape maneuver um particularly on short final which is how this happened um whenever you hit wind shear the way you fly the maneuver is you leave the configuration of the airplane just the way it is. You don't touch anything until you're out of the wind shear. And so you have, you know, erratic climb and descent rates, erratic, uh, you know, acceleration, deceleration, speeds all over the place, altitude is all over the place. Uh, and so it's very, very hard to control. I remember, I think I've, I've told this story. This, this happened to me in real life. On a, on a 777 going into Quito, uh, the, the new Quito airport. Um, that's, this is, you know, years ago and um we hit wind shear so strong that we could not get the airplane to descend we just we we were we were on the so we hit the front of it and it ballooned us up and no matter what we did so it was it was interesting because at first it was very subtle you know just hand flying very subtle you know you, you have your 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 standard i don't know uh Eight nine hundred feet a minute descent based on your speed. It's a little higher um, um, rate of descent in in, uh, in Quito because of the, uh, the the higher true airspeed and the altitude, the density altitude, and all that. Um, and so the rate of descent starts de- uh, to decrease and decrease and decrease. Obviously, your glide slip starts going away from you. And then no matter what we did, we just couldn't stay on glide. And, and then we re- we recognized it and saying when we saw the wind the 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 wind vector arrow on the navigation display changing, it was like oh. I know what this is. Mm-hmm. So before before the we hit the brunt of it, we hit go around, and uh, we we started to climb and climb and climb and climb. And when you hit go around once, at least on the triple seven, the first hit of the go around button will give you two thousand feet a minute initial um, uh, go around uh, climb rate. And so that's all we needed because that's that's all we we didn't actually get a wind shear alert as of yet. Um, so the airplane pitches for 2,000 feet a minute, but uh, the airplane was climbing at three, four, five thousand 5,000 feet a minute. And then we hit, and then we actually hit the proper wind shear and the airplane went wind shear ahead, wind shear ahead. And it just, everything started shaking. And so we hit it again. And I tell you, it was, I've, I've never felt the airplane climb the way that it did at the attitude that it was climbing at. Mm-hmm. So we weren't, we didn't have our nose at a, at a go around attitude. We were, we were I'm not going to say we were level. But you're not at 20 degrees nose up like you would mm-hmm. otherwise would be on a go on a, on a to on get that kind of a climb rate. Yeah, you'd have to exactly. Like it was it was it was like yeah, it was like we were we were we were riding an elevator up. Uh, it was just <laughs> it was like crazy. holy crap. 
Just hope we don't get insane. the down yeah. part of this elevator anytime soon. But I guess you ended uh, up going exactly. through the down part uh, on the initial part of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was it was uh, it was that's scary stuff. I tell you, yeah. I mean, you can't you can't see the instruments. I mean, the fact that the guy was able to do a frequency change because everything is shaking so hard that you. I mean, you can't you, you can't see your radio panel. You mm-hmm. can't see numbers. You can't see instruments. You can't see any. I mean, you, all, all you can do really is hold attitude and you know right. just hold on for dear life and, and wait just, for it to be over. So. Just hope that uh, you know you can keep it upright. You know, and, and uh, going down. Wow. And that tells you how tough these things are built. Because, man, oh, man, these things are built tough. They are. a lot. They can handle a lot more than any of us would feel comfortable with. So, mm. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Landon, and I don't know if we're going to try to cover this really quickly. We only have a few minutes left in our self-imposed hour timeline here just under 15 yeah. okay um landon sent us in some audio feedback number 12 and uh, let's take a listen to uh, what landon has to say hey APG. hey landon from the left coast once more once again one more again hey um uh, i had a question uh for jeff since uh, jeff uh, has a uh, history of uh, flying antique aircraft okay. so question is about long-range navigation and using the I, the N, and the S. Not immigration and nationalization. Um, I forgot what the S means. But uh, the INS, Inertial Navigation System. Um, yeah, so curious about that. How did that work? Did you guys have it in the Elton 11? I'm positive you guys probably had it in the uh, C-141. And... Um, Nick, did you have it in the uh, in the F four? I don't. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. How, how did you navigate long distance uh, in the F four uh, when you were flying around? Um, I know Rick can't. It, well, actually, you know what? I can't even say Rick can't answer those questions. There's not many damn questions he can't answer. <laughs> um, so, Jeff, this is a Ricketts moment for you. <laughs> oh. Okay. Okay. All right, y'all stay up now. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you, Landon. Always good to hear from you out there on the uh, uh, the left coast, uh, Northern California. Um, yeah, so um, never heard of INS. I don't know what he's talking about. Triple INS, baby, in the in the uh, uh, C one forty one B Starlifter, um, and uh, they weren't as accurate as today's uh, area navigation systems, especially the GPS systems. Uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but, you know, it was completely self-contained. And uh, as I said, we had three of them. They were the um, Litton, something like laser ring gyro or something like that. I can't remember. The carousel, I think, is what they called them. Kind of like, it reminds mm-hmm. me of carousel. Is the uh, uh, is, You're probably too young for this, Rick, but they used to have these um, things called slides uh, in photography where you, you know, you use slide film. Oh, yeah, of a, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you put them in this um, little carrier uh or uh uh-huh. and and it was I mean, a, you click a, a circle. button and they tray. and they yeah yeah a tray thank you uh, liz and uh and it was in a circle and uh kodak calls it i think they called them the carousel didn't they uh, they did yeah they, they did. did thank and you liz. they would drop down in yeah and they drop down and then they pop back up and then it would move a little bit in increment and then the next one would go down whatever uh but uh litton industries with the their uh, inertial navigation systems um called them carousels for some reason. I know it probably had something to do with the architecture of this uh, device, but basically a self-contained 
um, a bunch of um, very expensive, sophisticated gyros that uh, you once they spun up, you basically told this device that this is where we are on the Earth. And from that point on, just by using its gyros, internal gyros, could with pretty okay accuracy. I mean, if you weren't going very mm-hmm. far, they were pretty accurate. If you're going, you know, 10, 12... My hall says it was the Delco carousel. Delco carousel. No, mm-hmm. not, a, not, not on my airplane. Is that supposed to be a joke, Delco? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Ronco. It was Ronco, I think. No, it was Litton Carousel. I don't think it was a Delco, but I could be wrong. Anyway, mm. whatever. doesn't matter. Um, so these things, uh, we had three of them. And if you go for 10, 12, 14 hour flights, uh, after that long of just using this inertial platform without any way for this thing to update itself it didn't it didn't i don't believe it used any ground-based navigational aids or maybe it did when you had them available and overseas you didn't have them so it didn't it just relied Mm -hmm. upon its own internal uh gyroscopic um, means of determining its position but we'd we'd always keep track every time we do a position report we would uh keep track of um you know where each one of the inertial navigation systems thought it was each each one of the platforms and we kind of keep track of that sometimes we'd notice that there was a trend toward one of them like not being the same as the other two and so after a while you finally go okay that third one or whichever one it was that was kind of going off the road uh, we just kind of Doing ignore that thing. one, yeah. And uh, right. but you know, it, it, you know, then, we do, we do that we do that to this day actually. Oh, do you? And, okay. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've I've never I've never personally flown with an inertial navigation system. All, all the airplanes that I've ever flown are uh, equipped with inertial reference systems, which are slightly, uh, not slightly, uh, a lot more a lot more accurate. But you still have you know you know triple IRSs. Uh, triple IR, no, not IRSs, IRUs, inertial reference units. Uh, mm-hmm. Three IRUs make up the inertial reference system. And uh, part of the COSTAP procedure is to look at the uh, the accuracy of each one. And so, but, but that's exactly what, the, what you were saying there. Um, they are they're very, very accurate as long as they're able to uh, fix their position based on either uh, two DMEs, uh, a radial and a DME, or two radials, or a localizer in a DME. So anything that'll fix that position in space um, will uh, will um, um, kind of you know reset it and keep it from drifting. And interestingly enough, airplanes that are not GPS equipped um, are not able to uh, update the position of the IRSs, and w- which is why once you coast out and you are I don't know 250 miles away from land, usually when you lose uh, uh, you know, VHF coverage from from any uh, from BORs and this sort. Uh, the system will tell you that the IRSs are now in nav only, telling, letting you know that the IRSs are not updating their position anymore. And then what you have is is, is basically what you got. And um, uh, the the interesting thing about this is that uh, uh, it it I'm talking, you know, um, 10, 15 years ago when I was flying 767s in South America, we had a procedure where uh, you were not allowed to intercept an approach, a final approach procedure off of lateral navigation or LNAV, just basically by following that magenta line, because you would get, uh, after a long period of the IRS is not being updated, you would get a, what's, called, what's called a map shift, 
which means that the, the, the line that you're supposed to follow is not where it should be because mm-hmm. it's drifted over time because, you know, because of that inaccuracy. And so you could find yourself in a position where um, uh, you could you know, lose um, your, um, I guess, safety margin with regards to the terrain around you, particularly in, in, in South America. So the, the way to go was we used to fly in head and select, just like an old school airplane in head and select and just basically radials to intercept the mm-hmm. final course to the runway. Uh, and it was interesting because you would see the magenta line, you know, a couple of miles to the left or to the right. So, yeah, yeah. we had on uh, the inertial reference system, which is a little bit sort of like an in- inertial navigation system, but different um, on the, um, on the mad dogs, the uh, earlier ones uh, before we got them better um, platforms. Um, one of the, uh, we, a lot of the older, um, 88s had, um, AHARS, uh, attitude heading, uh, reference system. And those things were notoriously not accurate at all. And they, they, you know, they'd crash and then you had to reset the whole, you know, on the ground. Um, they didn't, thankfully they didn't crash too much in flight, but the map shift was, you know, anytime you got map shift, it was because of, it was a, the old AHARS, uh, kind of a inertial system or, uh, and, and you can system. see it on the ground. You can see the map shift. I mean, you can see the, uh, um, so you'll uh, remember that your your ground speed, anytime you get any kind of uh, ground speed reading, is it's inertial ground speed. And so, mm-hmm. you know, oftentimes uh, after, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes to an hour uh, after you've initially aligned at the IRSs, you'll start to see a, a, a ground speed reading of one, of two, of one or two knots. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, you know, wait, I don't think we're by the time, yeah, we're not moving. I think I got, I got the brakes set, right? It's not, it's not windy out. So, um, and you'll start to see the position of the, of the, uh, of the uh, runway change in relationship to the, to the uh, airplane symbol. Mm -hmm. And so to, to, uh, to get rid of that, there was two ways of doing that. The first one is by doing what's called a quick align, which basically you put the three selectors on the align, uh, detent, and then you re-enter the, the position of where you are, um, based on you know um the uh the charter or, or, or whatever the approved method is mm-hmm. or uh once you'd go and line up on the runway the second you uh, at least this is on the 767 the second on the mad dog too same thing. yeah you select takeoff thrust and yep. that'll reset the position to the beginning of the runway which is why it's important to make sure that on your on your takeoff reference page you let the system know whether you're going to be taken off from the beginning of the runway or if it's an intersection takeoff, um, mm-hmm. what your displacement is going to be, so that so that that position picture is uh, accurate once you select takeoff. As accurate as you can make it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. I was uh, looking up uh, while you were talking, uh, Rick, about uh, the Litton um, LN three inertial navigation system, the carousel, and I did a quick uh, find command in this article, and there's only one spot where Delco came up and it regarded a, a missile, a UGM-27 Polaris missile, uh, let's see, was equipped with an MIT-developed inertial system, which later evolved to the Delco-produced IMU of the Apollo PGNCS. Yep. That's right. PGNCS, what's that? PGMCS? Um, oh, the Apollo Primary Guidance Navigation and Control System. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? I know. Should have been the tip of the tongue. So, yeah. I hope that answers uh, our listener's question. Who was it that asked again? Uh, Landon. 
<laughs> How could I mm-hmm. forget? Um, yeah. Um, and I, we can't answer the F4 question. I don't know if they had uh, INSs or not, uh, but... Uh, I do believe they had. I've, I've, and and the reason why I, I do believe they have had, they have them, is because I remember um, uh, oh. reading about uh, inertial platforms uh, tumbling on uh, on airplanes that are uh, catapulted off uh, uh, aircraft carrier decks. So that was that that tended to be an issue there. Well, now um, that I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking that the uh, LN twelve A slash B series are an evolution of the LN3 and are used on F4C, uh, the F4D, F4E, and RF4C aircraft. There you go. So, yes, I guess it did. So you did, you did know that. Yeah, I do. I, I don't know why I didn't. <laughs> right at the tip of your it was at the t- It was on the tip of my tongue, and I just, like, it was one right. of those things where, oh, yeah, now I remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hey. You know what, Jeff? Today anyway. you are this guy. Uh, what? No, I'm not. I'm no, nowhere near deserving of uh of crickets (laughs) no i'm more uh this guy uh liz that's me (laughs) squirrel (laughs) anyway uh that's going to or yeah that's where i I feel like my life right there just running around uh uh, one of those hamster wheels (laughs) okay so well, with that, right that, at the hour mark. Unfortunately, yeah. we're right at the uh, one hour mark. And I know it, when I put these two parts together, it's probably going to be a little bit longer than our normal show. But hey, I don't know about you, but I think it's worth it. And uh, Absolutely. so yeah. thanks for uh, hanging in there with us. And Rick, thanks so much for, for joining me today to uh, kind of oh, finish off the uh, show. And I'm glad that we were able to accommodate your schedule. And, um, and, and glad you took some time out of your uh, time there in uh, Hawaii to... Uh, to be with us and uh but maybe just mention again wednesday okay oh yes uh and just a quick mention again wednesday hopefully this will be out before wednesday <laughs> uh but if you are listening to this and it's before wednesday what day of the what what's the date on that uh liz that would be the 19th 19th of uh, may 19th. that's when we're uh, planning on doing our next uh two-parter probably Eastern part one Daylight. And uh, so uh, to um, honor and reward you, Rick, for you joining me today, uh, I'm going to let you uh, take us out as far as telling the folks, and Liz will help you. She'll pop these things up on the (laughs) screen. Um, The uh, ways that, uh, well, first of all, let me tell you about our website, airlinepilotguide.com, and uh, lots of stuff there. Just check it out. You'll be amazed at all the amazing things that you can find on our website. And we're also on social media. I like to call it the Meads, And I can say that because Steph's not here. And uh, so Rick is going to tell us about uh, the Meads that we are on. Well, we are on Twitter at APG Crew. All of us are on there. Uh, Facebook page is Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, I do believe that we have an Instagram that uh, Steph posts on and I should post on as well. Uh, APG crew, and if you want to take, yeah, I know I should. I don't, want, and I've so. got you know lots of. <laughs> I know I got lots of lot. lots of cool cool content. Yeah, absolutely. I should, yeah, I should put some of that on the on the Instagram. Absolutely. Oh yeah, and uh, if you want to take a deeper dive, uh, I do believe uh, Hillel runs a, a little racket out there on his own. Uh, yeah, called uh, <laughs> the Slack Team. So I think I think uh, I think we should let him tell us about. Do that. you think? Okay, let's. Yeah. Uh, Let's see if I can uh, get the hidden microphone in my 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 bed. Hey, hello. 
Hello? Do you have time for Slack? That's okay. Just make sure you towel off before you walk over here and get it all over my fancy, expensive equipment. Okay, let me move over. And okay, here's the microphone. Tell us about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you very much, sir. I do appreciate that. So now go back and do whatever it was that you were doing over there. No, no. Turn, turn. Oh yeah, Delta P. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> Delta P. Got to get that in there. All right, and uh, also a big round of applause to our producer, director, my assistant in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Liz Piper. Thank you, Liz. You're the best. Absolutely. Thank you for uh, doing all the work that you do. It's uh, very much appreciated by all of us. And uh, I thought I fixed that. Apparently I didn't. Anyway, and with that, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. We'll see you next time. Bye. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I got I fly